Hey, everybody, this is Jason. I just want to do a little thing before I do the thing before I do the episode. Uh, my friend Billy D. Washington, he's a comedian from Houston, and he obviously uh, and his community have been just devastated by Hurricane Harvey. Billy has started a fundraising campaign to help the people in his community. I want to be clear, and he wants to be clear, that none of this money is for him. He actually donated a bunch of money to get the thing started, but it's called Houston Flood Comedy Cares. It's on GoFundMe.com, and 100% of the money is going to go to help minorities and elderly people who are victims of Hurricane Harvey and victims of the flooding and may not get the help they need in other ways. So it'll really make a difference, a substantial difference in some people's lives to turn this around for them and get them on their way. He has a $10,000 goal, which feels pretty modest to me. He's raised $2,365 so far. I gave a little money. And just give whatever you can. Like, I don't have much to give, so I didn't give a lot, but I gave something. And my, the way I feel about all this stuff is a little something is always better than nothing. So if you're thinking about donating to the rescue and fundraising efforts for the victims in Houston, you can trust Billy. You can trust this GoFundMe effort. 100% of the money will go where it should go, and I would really appreciate your help. Billy's a good guy. He's a tremendous comedian, and he really cares about people in his community. He was really great when I met him in Asheville, and his friends he was traveling with were terrific, and I'm happy to be able to support them. I don't normally do this kind of fundraising effort on behalf of anybody else, so uh, the fact that I'm doing it should speak to how highly I think of Billy and how important I think this is. So... GoFundMe.com, Houston Flood, Comedy Cares, give what you can. If you can't give anything, that's okay. But if you can, it'll be appreciated by everyone. And let's get on with the show. Thank you. Hi, everybody. This is Jason. I'm just getting into my little preamble thing, this new thing I'm doing. Uh, tell me if you like it. I'm curious. Do you like the fact that I'm spending a little time talking to you before the podcast start? Or do you feel like it's super self-indulgent? I like it, but uh, I'm the one indulging myself. So let me know what you think. I'd be curious to hear. Anyway, uh, assuming you haven't skipped forward uh, at this point, I just thought I would touch base, let you know what's going on. I'm still sort of riding this crazy high from having lunch with a friend of mine who wants me to do the Landmark Forum, which I'm not going to do. And I go into great depth on this mini fail number three that we're going to release pretty soon. So I'll just save all that for when that comes out, but uh, definitely check it out and listen. It's um, it's a pretty funny story, and then also it gets really personal in the second half because I know what it is to be invested in your personal growth and spirituality. I really had a very long period of time in my life. I mean, it was seven years. It felt long, where that was the focus of my entire existence was trying to get enlightened and meditating and working with a spiritual teacher and all the highs and lows that came with that. It's actually the reason I moved to Asheville, was to be closer to that whole world, and some of my best friends were involved in that, and one of my best friends, who's still one of my best friends, uh, he's the guy who got me involved, and I came here to live with him and live with some other friends and kind of help build the community, and then ultimately got jettisoned from that community, but not until after the guy who I'd moved here not that I moved here to live with him or near him, you know, but he and his wife were two of my best friends, and when they lived here, they we were both. How do you do? I say both because there were three of us. Anyway, the three of us were living here separately for a year, but I lived right down the road from them. And honestly, for that year, I don't think I made any friends in Asheville. I don't think I met a single local person. 
it wasn't until they left town that I actually was forced to kind of open up and meet people who were from here. And then for the next couple of years, I was super social, met a ton of people, got involved in a lot of projects. It was really cool. It was really feeling at home here. And then I was ready. I'd, I'd invented the eggs. I'd started my video business. And I kind of realized, like, I was ready to sort of take a break from the whole spiritual thing. I didn't want to stop, but I wanted to maybe take a little step back because it was almost too much at that point. And I went back to L.A. for the summer. And right before I left, my then ex-girlfriend and now ex-girlfriend called me to tell me that she was pregnant with my daughter. And it was one of those situations where she left me a voicemail that said, hey, Jason, it was really great to see you the other day. Um, if you could please call me back. I really need to talk to you. It won't take very long, but I do really need to talk to you. And when you get a message like that from a woman that you have recently stopped dating, and it was about five or six weeks since we'd split up, uh, when you get a message like that, it can only mean one of two things. Either she's pregnant or she has some kind of infection that she needs to ask you about or tell you about. <laughs> so those are the only two possibilities for why you get a call like that. That's not the only reason for someone to call you, but it's the only reason the message sounds like that one. And I'll never forget the moment that she told me. I made her tell me over the phone, even though to her credit, she wanted to tell me in person. But I was leaving town. Like I was going a million miles a minute, just like trying to get out of town. I didn't have time to meet with her. I was like, look, you've got to tell me what's going on. You can't, you can't make me wait. And I, it can only be two possibilities. And she's like, what do you mean? You know, I'm like, well, either you're pregnant or you have an STD, which is it? Anyway, she was pregnant. Um, and that was shocking. And, you know, I remember losing all the color in my face and just kind of falling back against the refrigerator in shock. And I also remember being pretty relieved that it wasn't at least a very serious STD. That would have been worse. So I think, uh, I mean, long-term anything, <laughs> okay, that didn't come out right. Anything would have been worse, uh, except, you know, finding out that someone you're not in a relationship with and not sure you want to be in a relationship with is pregnant with your child. That's not a great day, but, uh, she's a great person in spite of our not insignificant differences. And, you know, we have this incredible child who, anyone who knows me, you know that she is the love of my life. I mean, I love this kid so much. It's crazy. So, you know, what started out as one of the worst phone calls I've ever gotten certainly led to absolutely the greatest person who's ever been a part of my life, which is my child. And I know most people feel that way about their children. At least I hope they do. And it's definitely true for me. I mean, I will always... The weird thing is feeling like I will always have to be thankful to a woman who I didn't want to be in a relationship with because she brought our daughter into my life. And my daughter, our daughter, is the absolute greatest thing to ever happen to me. So, all right, wasn't planning to go here, but here we are. Anyway... Oh, I know why I went into all that. If it wasn't for the fact that I was having a child, I would have moved back to L.A. I had already developed the three-minute egg, which is my yoga product, and you should check it out if you're not familiar with it. And I'd already developed that, and I had a 
bunch of them made in China, and they were literally on a boat from China to California, and then they were going to ship from California by land to North Carolina. And at one point, I decided to split the shipment and have them leave half of it in California and ship half to North Carolina. And then I decided, you know what? Let's just leave it all in California. Because I figured even if I moved back to North Carolina, my egg business was going to do better in California. So I left them in my parents' garage in Santa Monica, which they said yes to and then I think regretted. (laughs) And I remember my dad decided he regretted it one night at four in the morning and he got up and he took all the boxes and moved them to the yard at another friend of mine's house, a friend of his house, really, and a friend of mine, a family friend. Anyway, uh, moved everything to that guy's house in another part of Santa Monica and just left 2,000 of my yoga eggs in boxes under a tarp somewhere in L.A. Like, And he made this decision at 4 in the morning because my father goes through phases where he makes decisions that most of us wouldn't choose and wouldn't feel the same sense of urgency around. But that's a very, very long and separate story. Anyway, it's really thanks to my daughter being born that I live in Asheville. And I it's so funny because living here, I got into film. I wrote my first screenplay when I moved here, although the idea came from uh, a com- series of conversations I had with a guy who bought my cabinet shop out, out in L.A. I used to build cabinets and furniture for anyone who that's news to. And uh, before I left, I sold my business to this guy who we had a very complex relationship, wasn't great. But we kind of, um, he told me a couple, I introduced him to Curb Your Enthusiasm, the Larry David show on HBO that used to be on. It might be coming back, but I introduced him to that show. And then he came in one morning. He's like, Jason, I had a total Larry David thing happen. And then the next day he had another Larry David thing happen. I was like, you know, these two things together, that's a show. And I pitched him the idea and then he added some ideas. I ended up writing this thing. When we sort of had our falling out, he's like, dude, you can have the show. I don't care about it. So I wrote this pilot and maybe I'll make it available on Learning to Fail because they're never going to make it and I don't really care. It's such a great script though. And I can say that because I haven't written a second great script. Like I think this is my one script. I don't think that I'm a sitcom writer, but I really understood Kirby Enthusiasm and the characters and I wrote this story that absolutely, it's so good that people who read it say to me, are you sure this wasn't an episode? Like, are you sure this didn't happen? Because it so totally could have happened on that show. And I don't know that I could ever write for another show as well as I was able to write for that show. And of course, Larry David was never interested in having writing partners, (laughs) much less me being one of them. So remind me, I will try to share that Curb Your Enthusiasm script because it would still be fun to see that get made, but I can't imagine it being made with anyone other than those characters. It's just so perfectly fits who they are and the kind of things that would happen in their day. So I wrote this script with a guy who bought my cabinet shop. Well, I wrote it without him, ultimately. And that really happened in Asheville, but I was sending it back, sending drafts back to my writing friends in California. They helped me refine it, showed me things that I didn't realize were working in the script and said, you have to build this up. This has to happen more. This is a thread, whatever. And then I started making movies. I got into making movies here. And then I built, designed this yoga product and I became a yoga teacher and all these things would have been so much easier to do in California, but I ended up having a child here. So I ended up staying here. And Now I'm doing stand-up comedy 
And there's two places you really should be if you're doing stand-up. You should either be in New York or L.A. And ideally, you start in New York and then go to L.A. Because like Louis C.K. said, if you go to L.A. too soon, you'll have so many amazing opportunities that you'll stop writing and you'll stop developing as a comedian and you'll go after those other opportunities. And I don't want to stop developing as a comedian, especially now. I'm only two years in. I have a long way to go before I interrupt the trajectory of my growth as a comic. Now, this interview today is with Becca Steinhoff and her partner, Herbie. And Becca and Herbie live in New York, but Herbie's from D.C. and Becca is from Asheville. She got her start here. So she's someone who started comedy here, then went to D.C. and started all over again. And then the two of them moved together to New York, where they also started all over again. And they get into that in the podcast, so I won't spoil it. I'll let them tell you. But it's really cool. It's a great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's get to it. Hi there. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. Couples are complicated, and I know a lot of complicated couples. My guests today are Becca Steinhoff and Herbie Gill. These two New York-based comedians return to Asheville every year to get out of the city, see some family, and check out the new crop of comedians our community is cultivating. I bumped into them at an open mic, and after exchanging only a few words with Becca, I realized I wanted the rest of our conversation to be recorded. She brought her partner Herbie along, and the three of us got right into it. This is the moment where I thank you for listening and encourage you to make a donation on our donation page. It's also where I mention our Amazon portal, a link you can use to help support the podcast financially without spending any of your own money. But I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to bore you with how helpful it is to rate us on iTunes or why nothing is more important for a podcast than positive iTunes reviews. I'm not even going to ask you to keep telling your friends about Learning to Fail because we want this all to be a secret. All I'm going to say is Learning to Fail is a lot of fun for me, and I'm going to keep talking whether you're listening or not. And now let's roll my conversation with Becca and Herbie. It is way more fun having three people on the mic instead of two. The energy is alive, the conversation is dynamic, and as much as I enjoy the depth I experience that comes from doing one-on-one interviews, when I just want to laugh and enjoy myself, three people are better than two. This isn't really about my guests. It's really, it's just just an opportunity for me to have a one-way conversation. We cut out the whole other side of it. It's a very interesting, you haven't listened to the podcast yet. No. Oh yeah. See, my guests are incidental. Like they don't even make the final cut. It's how we work into your universe. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I need to understand. I'm an only child. Maybe that's not, now it's obvious. Yes. (laughs) So, okay. So, um, but I want to get I want to get back to it. So you were telling me, uh, first of all, your yoga thing. I don't even know. I don't know how to organically go back to where we were, but. <laughs> um, Herbie has a joke about how his girlfriend does yoga and he, you know, it's a great joke. Um, and I like it because we've been dating to get, we've been dating for seven years uh, and we've both been comics the whole time. But in seven years, that's the first joke that he's written about me. Um, cause in his act, it's, it's sort of 
it's sort of important that um, that he remains single. It's just sort of part of his act, and I never took offense to that because we're both comedians. Right. But it's still after. It's still nice to to have one that I know is about me. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to keep everything pretty separate. You also don't really write based on you know your everyday life. Your jokes are very metered, and they're very they're more about like a like a commentary of of society rather than your everyday. Yeah, I don't really think my everyday is very funny. Like I I don't think life is funny. I think our perspective is what makes it life funny and how we look at things and how we uh cope or whatever coping mechanisms you use. I think that's the funnier thing than just talking about a story that happened to me. Cuz most of the times if you have stories that happen to you, the things that people want to hear about are things that are generally frustrating to you or or difficult or something like that and I don't really see humor in that at the time but once you have a little bit of distance and perspective that's when something becomes funny so I kind of I'd rather not even I, I want to keep my world separate like I don't really talk about my family in a real sense I don't really talk about my relationships in a real sense and that sort of keeps me distant enough to talk about it and so this one was a interesting thing just because it it was a good joke. So I'm like, all right, fine, I'll give it a shot. So it still feels weird to me. Yeah. Do you think even, it, even you... last night I thought about changing it like I used to date somebody that was into yoga <laughs> just because it feels more normal for me to do it. it just, so I have to I have to force myself to do it every day. Which is funny because like in the Asheville scene, you know, we come back every year now. But I started doing comedy here in Asheville eight years ago. And so when Herbie's up there telling a joke about me or he's telling a joke and it's not about me, but it's about a girl. I got five people turning around going, huh? <laughs> really? And then and then at one point, PD turns around, he's like, yoga? And I was like, I'm like, stop looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> See, and that's why I hate it. I, I'd rather that not happen every time I tell a joke. So um, that, I, that's a big side effect. for That's a downside for me. Well, yeah. Herbie is very much a student of comedy. So his comedy comes from a place of a well-crafted joke and with stage presence and, and vocal and tonal shifts. And I think... For a long time, you know, when we met, um, he'd already been in the game 10 years and I was a year in. So I tried for a few years to do what he was doing, thinking that it was the right way. And then I kind of came into my own where I realized that's not how I'm going to do it. That's not why I got into comedy. Even though I like comedy, I got into it because I thought I had a good entertaining ability, a good like affability to myself. So... I strive to capture that, and that the only way I know how to do that is with personal experience and everyday life. That's where that's where my humor comes from. So we do very different things on stage, and we don't really discuss them with each other <laughs> until they're done. Because um, if I bring a joke to him before it's been tested on stage, he might talk me out of it, and I used to let him do that, but I don't really do that anymore because I've told him stuff and he'll say I don't really get it and then I've just done it on stage anyway and it works and he'll go I don't know why that works and I'll go I don't really care if you don't know why it works right. sure yeah. who cares why it works if it works I'm, but I'm very worried about why something works because it's all it's the only math I could ever do because it's like everything makes sense there's a weight to jokes there's a there are two stories that you're telling every time, and one story is supposed to set up the rules in, uh, in the world where the joke lives, and then the other one sort of turns it against itself. So there's always a why, and I'm always searching for that why, because I have to be able to somehow control it in my own head. And I come from a place where 
I, if it works, and I don't necessarily know why, I just count it as a win for trying to harness the naturality that I'm going for. Right. So that's just what people are. Oftentimes when I can't figure out why something works, it's because it's just, it's just basing into the, like people's natural instincts. It, and I'm showing something, I'm showing humility or I'm showing a personality that is true to myself. And so that's, I just take that for, as the why. Right. I think those are, I mean, so what's already interesting, right? I mean, as comedy is so diverse in terms of our approach to it, and, you know, the two of you are comics, you live together, and you have diametrically opposed methods, and even just, like, the aftermath, like, you're like, I don't care why it works, and he's like, I only care why it works. Right. You know? <laughs> it's like, and and I always, whenever I have a joke that doesn't work, I'm like, why the hell didn't that work? Like, that, to That's me, is so That's a more so important good. question, isn't it? Why doesn't it work? Well, they're both important. Right. Yeah. Because it's like if you don't know why something works, you can't really count it as consistent because you'll do it the same way and it won't give you the same results. I need something that I can sort of trust to do the same thing every time. And why doesn't something work? That one's a little bit easier a question than why does it work? Because, I mean, you could say, well, the thing I did didn't work. So I could just do something different and just trial and error my way through it. I don't mean to say that I don't care to know why something works. Because, of course, that's how you end up writing consistently funny materials if you can pinpoint why it's funny. But um, I'm more concerned about uh, maintaining a level of comfort that allows me to... Right. That I don't care as much about the why as I do about uh, mastering a behavior. Right. That's the most important thing for me because then funny, there's no where, there's no other choice but for humor to arise from that if I'm comfortable. Yeah. And, no, I get it. And I wasn't. Yeah. No, I, I wasn't genuinely accusing yeah. you of not not caring How about the art of, of comedy. <laughs> yeah. But I do think it's. But it is different. I mean, one's like a mathematical, scientific approach, and one's mm. more of a intuitive like personal mm -hmm. approach that's what i'm hearing anyway. yeah and i'm i'm more think gig she is more feel gig yeah, yeah we realized that the other day herbie has a great way of describing it where he's like you know he's a he's a word guy he's married to the words he can go off book but he is very much married to his words whereas i'm a ride the wave comic um which didn't originate those terms didn't originate with us but it's just it just so happens that he's one and i'm the other mm. um and that's actually what we've been working on. That's why I've been working on a lot since we've been down here. Because since we've been down here a week and we've both gotten multiple, like, 15, 20-minute spots, which is normal for Herbie. He's on the road a lot. But for me, being in New York for a year, it's been nothing but two-minute mics right. for a year. So it's, Where have you been that you've been doing these long spots? Because I didn't even know you were in town. Oh, uh, well, we were in Greenville mostly. Okay. Um, we did the Comedy Zone last week, and then we did... Uh, Groovy Tuesdays, both for Tom Emmons. Um, I love Tom, yeah. Yeah, he's great. I mean, and I've, we've known Tom. I've known Tom for eight years now, too. Yeah, I've seen him through several different looks. <laughs> yeah, it's weird for me now to come back, and, and a lot of people have moved on from the city. I'm one of them. Uh, and so there's just a whole new crop, and that's the most interesting thing about coming back and why we stay for an entire three-and-a-half-hour show because we want to see the new crop. We want to see what's coming out of Asheville. We want to see 
how good our friends have gotten. We want them to see our new stuff. Right. I also just love jokes, too. So it's like I want to be around it as much as possible. And nobody, I mean, consistently, the Disclaimer Stand-Up Lounge has a great crowd. It's a constantly turning crowd. Like, people just feel free to get up and go as they please. But last night, it was, like, at its best because people were attentive and the energy was really good. And, you know, I really enjoy it. Were you guys still there when I went up at the end of the night? We yeah. were. And we, I st- thought you, we stayed till the end of the we show. Did. And I yeah. thought you handled the hecklers very well. Even when it was Carrie and Blaine. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, yeah. hey, you all run this. <laughs> I was like, you're setting a bad example. I shushed them myself, too. The, uh, earlier, I was like, I'm trying to watch a comedy show, and you guys are making it really hard. But yeah. that's just because they're there every week. Like, they've heard it all, you know? Uh, and and it, is, it is grueling by the end of the night, you know. Well... I, that's why I find it challenging down here because you get two minutes, maybe three minutes, maybe five minutes up in New York. And so I'm used to seeing people struggle and, and kind of squander their minutes, but at least it's only two minutes. Right. If, and if you can't get a laugh in two minutes, you should have, you have no business getting five, but down here that would never happen. It would make a shorter show. Right. There's a lot of things that could be done that I would never have suggested before moving to other cities and seeing how other people run a show. And I wouldn't really do that to Carrie because I love Carrie and I think the energy there is, is great. And I mean, what they have definitely works, you know. It's like, yeah, but it's long. Oh, no, it's way too long. But it's also like there's something about the fact that it's so full every Wednesday. Like people actually – we have real audience members that look forward to it, that show up. They come every week. We have new people coming every week, you know, so there's some, I mean, much like the comics rotate in and out over time, the audience rotates in and out over time. I don't know how those guys come every week and watch mostly the same comics do mostly the same bits. I mean, I mean, we do it. Yeah, but I mean, like, that's also just sort of being around the thing, too. Also, we've, we were pleasantly surprised by several people last night, you know, people that we saw trying to figure it out for years. For years. Are, it's coming together, and that... Is really exciting to see. Yeah. Um, Justin Blackburn. Yeah, he killed it last night. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Like, he got really, really good. Yeah. He, he turned the corner in about three months ago. That's yeah, excellent. something lined up for him where we, we've been watching Justin Blackburn for years, and that's a man who sacrificed doing well on stage to figure out what his voice was supposed to sound like. And I feel like last night we saw the culmination of everything that he learned not working and the best of what he learned from working. Right. Talk about someone who's really sitting there trying to figure out the why. Yeah. He got it. He's figured he got it. And that's, that was really cool. Um, because it really is about perseverance and, and stamina and not just about how naturally funny that you are. Yeah. Because if you you could be naturally funny, but if you don't know how to write, Mm -hmm. then you you won't have any longevity. You'll run out of your, your life stories and that's it. Nick Murphy gets funnier every year. He had his funniest joke last night that I've ever heard him tell when he's like, I had to Google three. Yeah, that was funny. I don't even know if that was deliberate. Like, I think that was actually him riffing and it was the funniest thing he's ever said. (laughs) I don't know yet. He didn't mention Hitler once. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, like he's uh, he's another person that sort of like and he had never to run up. through the trenches with it and then sort of figure out how or what he's supposed to sound like up there. Yeah. And I love that feeling just because we all have to go through that. And a lot of times it's it's easy to get sort of mired in your own uh, process and your own uh, progress as a comic that when you see that, you're just like, oh, yeah, there's still hope. There's still places you can go with it and um it's 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 nice especially for me just being in it for as long as i have been just being like all right there's always some place to go yeah in in this if you're paying attention and if you're willing to do the work and the and the crowds that you guys get are just so Asheville is such a creative city and they're starved for quality entertainment when it comes to comedy sometimes so that's another reason why i think that show's doing well yeah um I just want to shake some of these guys and tell them to go to another city, though. Because they're too good for Asheville? They're, they're, well, when I, the... when I first met Herbie, I had been doing comedy a year. We dated for a few years, and I was living in Asheville, and he was in D.C. And mind you, I learned a lot of what I know about comedy from this man. Um, but he, you know, he's like, you know, you're, you're in a vacuum, and you're never going to get... You're going to hit the ceiling. Right. Well, how would you describe it? Well, I mean, like, there's no... If you're... It takes you a while to sort of figure out the lay of the land wherever you're starting or wherever you're doing the work. And uh, after a while, you get there, and you... Whether consciously or subconsciously, you kind of stop challenging yourself to uh, do new things or to talk about new things or to be around different people. And I think it's really important to just sort of get out of that comfort zone every once in a while because that's all comedy is. It's sort of being able to deal with things outside of your comfort zone and go to a different spot, talk to a group of different people, be in a different scene. It's something that will only make you better and only help you your your work travel a little bit more right. and when you're just around the same people the entire time sometimes it doesn't really incentivize you to give yourself any new challenges and you kind of just repeating the cycle and never never really getting out of it and we always talk about the big fish in a small pond scenario i'm like it should never be that because if there's if you're a big fish in a small pond nobody's really eating the way they should so it's good to get out of it a little bit and uh, give yourself a different set of people to talk to. Right. Just giving yourself a di different set of people to talk to, like just a, going an hour south of here. Like if you are in Asheville, you have a lot of creative, very artistic people that uh, enjoy performance and are very patient. And even if it's something that's very avant-garde, they'll let you have it. And it's like, hey, explore this space, whatever you need to do. And if you go to an hour south to Greenville, it's a little bit more stringent. It's a little bit tighter but they want something to happen quickly for them. So they're a little bit less willing to go with you on that journey. So you're going to have to make something funny right away. Um, and those type of differences can exist in scenes just an hour far apart. From, sometimes even closer than that. But it's that's why it's great to go out and go to as many different spots as possible. Just so you can get a a different vibe of and a different approach on how to do things. I know when I uh, when I first started, I think the second time I performed was in Japan, and like the fifth time I performed was in Northern California. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, and then I came and just did a bunch of Asheville, Greenville, Asheville, Greenville, Asheville, Greenville. You know, right? Uh, and that was, re I mean, Japan was fun and easy. It was an expat bar, and yeah. you know, um, I 
probably thought I did better than I did, but I didn't do terribly. And, and, uh, and then when I went to Northern California, I, I had a relationship with Rooster Tea Feathers, which is a pretty famous yeah, I know club. You know? Yeah. So I knew them, and so they let me come do a guest spot. And I did okay, but looking back on it, like, really not great. Like, you know, I mean, I, I would do much more with my seven minutes on stage if now than right. I did Right, you learn how to then. appreciate yeah. that seven, yeah. And, uh, and, but at the time, I was like, it was all I had, you know, and I, and I thought I was crushing and, and... We all do. Yeah, I, it's amazing. I mean, it's like, if it, when you're starting, if anybody laughs at all, it's gratifying. And mm-hmm. then at some point, it's like, well, that wasn't enough people laughing or loud enough or long enough. Or, right, and then there's a point where you get all the people laughing, and then you're like, well, it's not the right kind of laugh. Right, So then you yeah. get the right kind of laugh. You're like, well, I don't feel like I'm talking to everybody at this point. It's a, always a different set of uh, things you got to figure out. Yeah, or it's like, or like you get all of it, and you're like, well, I didn't earn that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like or, it, or that weird feeling where you get everybody laugh, but you don't trust them. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, what are they all laughing for? Right, like, it's right, weird. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And it's, it's hard never being satisfied no matter mm. what the level of success is. But <laughs> I remember when I went to L.A. the first time, that was super humbling. Like, I lived in L.A. for a long time, and then I moved here. But uh, when I went back there as a comedian, you know, um, and I went to all the open mics, and I actually got up at the comedy store my first time, because it turns out if they don't recognize your name, there's a pretty good chance they'll let you perform, and they'll put you up as one of the first eight comics or something like that. Hmm. And I went up and started off really strong and then absolutely died up there because I was doing, first of all, I did something too long for the three minutes that they gave me. And then they forgot to light me and then they just played me off, you know? So it was like a really bad situation as far as like, just technically it went badly. So I didn't know, I kept watching to see like, how am I doing on time? And they weren't lighting me. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden I heard music playing and I was like, wait a minute, you know, but anyhow, uh, so it ended pretty badly. Uh, and that was just really, really humbling. And the material I chose to do does well in the South and doesn't do well in LA in West Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing this particular bit at the time, you know, sort of playfully getting the audience to question my sexuality. And, you know, I, I, the feedback I get is I come off pretty straight and I mean, I am straight and, but that no one thinks I'm gay when I take the stage, but I do these bits that call that into question and that's confusing for the audience. But in West Hollywood, they were like, Oh, so you're questioning your sexuality. That's not funny. That's just a regular that's just day. Life. <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and that isn't even really true. So it really didn't work. Yeah. You know, like, you know, and, and it was just, it was really humbling. Like you say, like you, you think something's working cause it's in front of, like a forgiving crowd, a forgiving crowd, or you, or I've kind or of, or just a crowd you kind of understand their dynamic already. Right. Yeah, right. You're preaching to the choir. At right, that point. exactly. So yeah. how do you know if something really works? Like you can have a caveat where well it works in the south, you know. Um, I actually started pointing that those jokes out lately, and that actually helps if I point out to people in the south, oh here's a joke, and I now know that only works here. Here's a joke that doesn't work here and then it actually that actually helps it work better like I have jokes that only work in New York and then I have jokes that only work down south and so by bringing I'll tell a joke that bombs in New York because it's about farming (laughs) right? and then it works down here and they'll go you guys don't know that not everyone likes this joke here's a joke that you guys don't normally like and then because it only works in new york and it's a joke about being an asshole so right. whereas if i just landed if i just told the the joke it wouldn't work 
by bringing to it their attention that it's not something that Southerners would typically laugh at, it actually gets a better response. Mm. Might be a cheat code. Might not be considered super professional to do that, but well, when I started, when when I started, I had a bunch of different influences, and Chappelle was like the first person I saw, and I saw him when he was younger, that didn't have like all of his jokes were meant to talk to everybody, and I right. thought that was uh, that was probably the smartest thing to do. And when I started doing comedy, I started in Florida, and you would see people that just worked Florida they would and they would work 52 weeks out of the year and none of the the quality wouldn't grow in their comedy and they'd kind of be talking about the same subject matter just kind of stuck in this time bubble but then you'd get New York comics come down and you think oh yeah well New York that's that's like the mecca I'm sure they're going to be amazing down here and a lot of them were just telling subway jokes and nobody got it right. and then they'll go back up north and be like, oh, yeah, well, the south doesn't get me. And it's like, no, you just made no effort. No, you don't get the south. No. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, and, and then you end up sort of not going out into those markets because you're like, all right, well, it's an ideology built out of a weakness. But you're like, all right, well, I can't go down there because they don't understand my type of humor. But there is a downside to every man or, like, the timeless universal jokes. Like, sure, as a, as writers and as creatives, that's what we all strive for. But when we first got to New York, you know, Herbie's jokes are meant to be on the road. They're, they're the everyman. They're timeless and universal jokes. And the New York comics can smell that a mile away, and they don't dig it. So right. he had to... And I'm not going to sell it that well because right. I know it works. He had to work right. on sort of getting an edge a little bit because that's kind of what they want to see. Not that you don't have an edge, but you had to sort of like write material with a little bit more point. Well, I just had to do it. I just had to make sure it was a little bit fresher because I think that newness to a joke, that comes across. Mm -hmm. So I, I had to sort of make sure I was using these mics for what they're for, and that's for generating new material. And I, that, I'm I'm fine with that lesson as long as I, if I could fall hard, that's fine as long as I can learn something from it. And uh, once I started doing that, I got a lot more out. And um, that's the beauty of this thing. It, it, it teaches you these lessons in the fairest sense as long as you're listening. So, was, so I can sort of have that feeling of, oh, man, maybe what I'm doing isn't as good as I thought or... Uh, it, I, I have to completely rethink my entire persona or what I'm trying to do on stage. And it's like, no, you kind of just have to pay attention a little bit more. Like, sort of step away from yourself and start working. And remember why you got into this. It's not because of, it was going to be something that's easy. Because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And everybody would be as funny as they think they are. And a lot of people aren't. So yeah. you just have to sort of go in and do the work. And as long as you're doing the work and you're paying attention you can sort of continue to do the work where so do you tell me a little bit about your career in comedy at the moment herbie are you surviving off your comedy do you have a day job do you um i what oh i've been full-time comedy four different times where that was all i was doing and the problem with comedy is kind of a feast or famine business so sometimes you're doing really well you got a bunch of gigs in a row you're making your bills and uh Sometimes there's nothing, and you're trying to get some more road work, and it slows down for whatever reason, or clubs close, or something. So I end up getting service industry jobs. Like, I'll bartend during the week if I'm at home, just so I can 
supplement my income with that. Right. And um, that's been like that since I was in college. I started in college. And oddly enough, comedy is the one constant that I've had since then. Like, that's this is the longest job I've ever had, and it's the one that I always stuck with. And, um, like, you, you learn how to make it. And by making it, I mean, like, you can afford your bills and you can still sort of walk around and function and live. Um, but it does take a lot of work just to try and make sure you maintain that level of work. And now that I'm in New York, I'm trying to get, uh, make some headway into the clubs. So to do that, you're going to have to stay there, which means sort of getting off the road a little bit, uh, which means I'm going to have to work regular jobs a little bit. Right. And that's fine as long as I have a... As long as I have a purpose to what I'm doing, there's a uh, it's just a means to an end. But I I guarantee you, like I hate working regular jobs. I don't trust them. Any, you go into them for something because they sort of fit your lifestyle. They fit the things that you're trying to get done in your life, and they tend to sour very quickly for me. Where I'm just like, I don't trust this at all. This doesn't feel the same way. It's not doing the same thing for me anymore. And then I just want to sort of dive back into comedy because it's rocky as that terrain is it still makes sense to me more than i guess straight working world stuff does right so when you were working full-time as a comic were you headlining were you featuring who were you a mixture of of those two things uh because i'm pretty much i'll i'll headline half the stuff that i do on the road and i'll feature half of the stuff i do on the road um so more than anything just becomes about stringing a lot of things together so you can sort of stack those pay dates right and um I also want to be home a little bit and not have to be on the road all the time. Um, I've done both where you're never home and sometimes when you're like gone once a month. But um, I, I, I like <laughs> I like making sure I get out and do something comedy because I get stir crazy. If I, if I, don't, I realized the other day like in almost 17 years of doing stand-up, I, think I, I don't think I've spent more than 10 days not doing stand-up. Ten and, days in a row? Yeah. Or, yeah. Like, and after, when I get close to ten days, I'll start getting itchy. Like, I got to get on stage somewhere. I got to yeah. get on stage. So um, that's a nice thing that I have at the back of my head. I have a fail-safe to make sure I stay along with it. Because I think it's also very easy to stop. Because it takes a lot out of you having to go do these gigs. And sometimes you don't make as much money as you need to or want to. And sometimes the shows are hard. And it takes a lot out of you, and it's easy to just sort of, I could stay at home, do this other job, and make the money I need to, and not have to do all this work. But it's like, I I, I hate it. I, I've i always hated it. As soon as I found stand-up, I'm like, oh, this is the thing right. I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm all, I'd always rather be doing that, and I'm in a place now that hopefully stand-up can get me into something where that will be my, I can have that be my job. I can do some writing or I can do some voiceover. I can do any of these other uh, pursuits that I have just to make sure I can, I'm doing something creative and that's the thing that's paying me. Cause I, I, I definitely feel like something that's made in a creative endeavor, any money I make in creative endeavors beats any of the money I can make working a regular job. Sure. $50, $50 in entertainment beats 200 square dollars any day of the week to me. And what about you, Becca? Are you 
full-time are you what's your, um what's no your i've never been full-time um i think i get in my own way a lot because i do sort of require comfort and stability to feel like i can create mm. so i've always had serving jobs i've been waiting tables for 15 years with the idea that i'm just gonna do that until i can be successful in a creative endeavor or my knees give out um <laughs> that's always been which feels closer right now it feels like I'm never going to escape um but um I do feel like I utilize a lot of the same skills like getting being a server uses a lot of the same skills and it actually pays a lot better um and mind you hardworking service money is what footed the bill for our move to New York. So $50 in entertainment might feel better, but it didn't get us there. Right. So, um, it feels difficult to do both, but, um, I'm kind of used to it, but I'm also the kind of person that will let my job eat away my time to be on stage. I, I've gone more than 10 days. <laughs> I've probably taken six months off here and there mm. um, because when I moved to D.C. after doing comedy in Asheville for about four years, you know, what Herbie was talking about earlier about those bumps, it's not easy, it's not always fun. It's I had a couple of those come-to-Jesus moments with comedy where I was like, I'm not sure if this is exactly serving me the way that I had imagined just like the shine of it wears off and then the work settles in and the fight settles in and um sometimes you just don't feel like fighting you know um and I don't really I like stand-up and I think I'm good at it but it might not be what eventually is my success like it might be an ability that I'll always have and it might be something I'll continue to do but being in New York, I wonder if it's actually, it, it just takes, it's going to take so much. And um, I don't want to say that I doubt whether or not I could be successful at it, because I think if you really put in everything that you have, you're, you know, my chances are greater. But um, I would be happy to make money being creative. That would be happy. Would, that would be satisfying to me. But that being said, there's nothing more inspiring than you know, coming to somewhere where you don't have to fight for stage time. Um, and it does just sort of, sort of feel a little easier down here to do well. Um, which is why I liked the big fish, small pond thing. But I agree that I would have never gotten as good as I feel like I've gotten unless I had to fight for what I got in DC and what I'm still fighting for in New York. Yeah. I think there's definitely that. I mean, I, I see guys here. I've, I've been at it for, it'll be two years in September and I see people still telling the same, leaning on the same jokes that yeah. they were yeah. when I met them. And and on the one hand, I get it. And I guess they do okay, but I don't know how to deliver the same material over and over again to the same group of people. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I mean, if it works, if it works, then that's, that's one thing. Um, but if it, for me, it's like, it has to be on par with, with like for years I was telling the same jokes um, because it was just like my standard go-to hosting set. It was clean. It was unoffensive. It was right. tested and, and, and proven. Um, but I did feel like I was better than the jokes that I was telling. Right. Um, and that was frustrating. That yeah. was what was frustrating to me about that. Um, but I wanted to do well. Like, because I was given some opportunities in D.C., you know, 
after a couple years, I got the improv, I got the draft house. I was still fighting for a lot of other things, and the scene is very cliquish, and so I wasn't, I'm not in with all of them now, and it's evolved to the point where if I went back, I, I don't know if it would be a warm welcome, but um, it was... I don't know that. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel that way. I think uh, maybe that's just in my head. I think... Uh, we we feel yeah. that way. Yeah. And other people don't necessarily feel that yeah. way about us. Right. You know? A lot of times, I don't think people. I mean, like everybody's got their own lives and things that they have to deal with. So the things that we sort of impress upon them is like they're not even thinking about us. In that I'm way. sure that's true. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I've been paid. You know, I'm not like a. I'm not an open micer. Um, but uh, in New York, I am. <laughs> um, in New York, we both are. I don't. I'm not saying that either. <laughs> like, because uh, like most of the people that I see on these showcase shows and stuff like that, I know from being on the road. Like for me, I remember the first time I tried to do a show in New York. It was a bringer show, and I was still in college in Florida. And I went up, and I didn't know what a bringer show was, and it said they needed ten people, and. Uh, I could only sort of wrangle five people that I knew to come to this show, and I panicked because I didn't want to not get on stage. So I just went on the corner of Times Square and started telling jokes, trying to get five more people. And right. I got them, <laughs> and then I'm waiting for the rest of the time to get called up, and they never call me up. And I find out the reason is because my original five people never showed up. And they said, okay, it's no problem. We're going to get you on another show. You just got to bring ten more people and oh. that's when I came up with a thing of like, yeah, I, I became a comedian because I don't have 10 friends. <laughs> and ever since then, I was like, all right, fine. I'm going to just try to make sure that anybody that's here knows that I'm doing this for real and I'm going out at other places. And I remember being in that line and so many people were just like, they were performing and like, yeah, I do this club and that club. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. And then they said, yeah, but I just really want to work the road. I would just love to be able to work the road. I'm like, are you, are you an idiot? The road's right there. It's always there. You just go out and do it. Like, all I would want to do is work New York clubs. And that's when I realized that, yeah, like, the only thing that sort of determines your level, whether you're an open mic, like, if you're only at open mics, yeah, I would say you're an open micer. But if you're consistently trying to go out and get other things and you're seeing people that are there, I feel like you, if you're working hard at it, you're going to see those same people out there working to do the same things. And... Yeah. That's kind of what determines your level. I think the open micro people are the people that are just sort of in it for the party and for the social aspect of it. Right. And the, generally speaking, those are the people that don't really improve much because why would they? They already are into this scene without having to do any of that hard work. And the people that I want to be around are the people that are working towards something, the people that are really sort of trying hard to... I don't want to say expand a brand because it makes it a little bit uh, pretentious, but they're trying to grow something from their talent and really sort of challenge themselves and work hard at it and make new jokes and try to get up in new venues. My Like my only barometer of success really, I mean, I don't really believe in making it because making it such an, a vague term and I don't really believe in getting like rich with it. It'd be nice to make some money, but if you wanted to have something consistent, rich and cushy, get a desk job, get some insurance, take care of your life. But I also think success is like if you were, if you set a goal for yourself, like I'd like to work in this club, I'd, I'd like to be around these people, I'd like to try and be getting these shows and you're around those people that are doing that, eventually you see yourselves in those circles and in those rooms and you could see yourself 
progressing. And then once you get that, you're like, all right, okay, I've gotten that. I Now what else can I try and get from this? And it's, I mean, you get out of it what you put into it. So I'm not really super worried about being termed an open micer because I'm still out here working. Like right. that's the definition. That's a, it's completely the definition of a professional. Like I'm still going out there working. And I think that more open micer is a mindset thing than anything else because if you if you talk about somebody's an open micer, you kind of get that mentality right off the top. Is the it's the childish sort of just around there for the social aspect of it. You're just here to be connected to something and not really looking to get anything more out of it than what you got. Do you guys know Kevin Guti? No. In New York? No, he's so. got a show. He's been doing it. He's done five seasons. I don't know how many years that's spanned, but um, he just got picked up by Amazon. We're actually releasing my interview with him this coming Sunday, but he's in New York and he has a show called Comics Watching Comics. And what he does, I'll try and hook you guys up with him because he's in New York. And uh, he films like 50 comics. Mm -hmm. And then him and his... I think I've seen ads for this. His chosen panel, they critique the comics and, you know, they'll say good things about them if they're good, bad things about them if they're bad. Like, you got to be prepared to get beat up a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, um, But it's different from like Kill Tony where Tony's real MO in life is just to make people feel like shit mm-hmm. like that's totally his bag and he's got a funny fun podcast and i i do learn from it mm-hmm. um but you know he definitely likes to tear people down i mean he's a he's a born roaster mm. are you familiar with his no I but i love roasting yeah i i like what it used to be i, I like what it's turning into is kind of weird yeah no i mean i like flaming people yeah, that's what I was saying. Like, you like talking trash. <laughs> Not one person, like, in a roast battle, like what they're doing now, but, like, I like just talking about what I have already seen right. <laughs> when yeah. I get up there for a second. Yeah, what you've seen on stage? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not exactly appropriate because you don't want to, like, speak ill of another comic. But sometimes what the, what you've seen is just so strange that you just have to address yeah. it. And my thing was a lot more, if I'm doing that, it's... It, it speaks to the honesty of the room. Like, I'm here watching the show with the rest of you all the yeah, same way. Yeah. And it used to be, for me, a rite of passage. Like, when when you're doing it, like, it's that whole you only roast the ones you love thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we're watching the shows and we're saying these things about each other. There was a couple shows I would add, my favorite shows, where somebody says something about the person coming up. And then they come up and that person responds. And then that that's how you sort of play around with it's that. The ba- it's the right. handoff. Yeah. Right. It's a, it has a lot of functions. Yeah. Well, if you're friends, it goes well. If you're not such friends, then it's shitty. Always, right. And that's the funny thing, too, because now what, what ends up happening is you have people that are way too sensitive to have that being done. Mm-hmm. And people that don't get the... I don't want to say tradition because it makes it sound weird, but like I, there is a bit of a tradition that goes along with it where it's like, okay, well you've made it, you you've made it to this level and you're in this circle. If these people even feel comfortable enough to talk about you in this way, right. and you know it's all done in love, and they're and they're waiting for something back. It's like, hey, I'm um, it's 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 like a couple of dogs playing with each other. It looks like it's rough, but it's like, hey, I'm I'm not trying to hurt you. It's just we're playing. And it's fun. Yeah. My moment with Carrie last night was almost like a little breakthrough moment for me. Like, I'm I'm already friendly with Carrie and mm. Lane, you know? But I was, like, 
I scolded them. I straight up scolded them. Yeah, you know? I was right behind them, and I'm like, oh, wow. This is, you know? <laughs> like, there was that beat where it's like, yeah. oh, this and is then, actually serious. And then Carrie looked at me, like, almost, like, problematically offended. Right. And then he just decided to light me, and then that was funny. Right. And then, you know, and then I got off stage, and I, you know, gave him a high five, but really hard. Yeah, I remember that. You know, and it was like. He's like, oh, that's the most passive aggressive. He's like, no, that's aggressive aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like, but I mean, again, that's how you sort of get through that level because you had something that you really had to say, and you felt a certain way. But at the same time, it would suck if you sort of torpedoed your entire show for that thing and so. my and my presence in Asheville right like right. I don't want to torpedo my existence at that mic either right, like right. It's, and and it's like you pick the right person for that because he's not sensitive enough to sort of take that feeling and let it grow into something where it becomes resentment it's yeah. it's something where it's like it was like message received, but then there was a perfect beat. Like if he had waited a beat longer for that, it would have been a little bit tense because it's like, oh wow, you, you know, Carrie just got yelled at. But because he did that lighting thing, not only did it save, it saved a little bit of um, damage from your set, but it saved a little bit of damage from the show and your relationship because it's like totally. now it's like received. Here's something back, and then you moved on after that, it yeah. was, and it was fine. Everybody it was fine, understood. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's always fine. Yeah, it was good. So I told him afterwards. I said, I feel like if you and I are now at a point where we're fucking with each other during my set, I feel like I've arrived. Yeah. Exactly. You know? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, like, I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just... Yeah, because how many people are, uh, will go up and you, like, go get nothing and don't really seem to be listening or... Nobody ever talks to them. It's like, all right, they're going to flame themselves out. You're, right. You're like, you... You haven't really gotten into anything until people feel comfortable enough around you to give you those jokes back and forth. So, yeah, yeah I, I, it was nice to witness that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. yeah, it was funny. Well, it was also cumulative for me because, you know, I they put me up too late at that show almost every fucking time. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't think I'm a I'm a I'm a last hour comic anymore. That's fair. You know, and it's just and I, my problem is I get there late. And so then they kind of can't put me up too early. Although I see them, I see other people get there late and get up, you know, in the middle, in the meat of the sandwich, as they say. You know? right. but, but they've been at it for six fucking years. You know, it's like, I've been at it for two. So I feel like I have to, if I show up early, I get a good spot. If I don't show up early, I don't get such a good spot. Right. But I used to never get a good spot. And so by the end of the night, for a long time, for a solid year of performing there, mm -hmm. I was always on at the end of the night. And right. I, and I have a kid. I can't be there every week. Like... So it might seem from the outside like I'm a, I don't really care and mm -hmm. I just kind of show up when I can. But the reality is I show up every time I can. There's just a lot of times I can't. Right. Well, and I think well, with what happened last night, however small that was, it's one of those things that sort of puts people on notice that you're around mm. and especially how you handled that whole thing and it didn't just like because that one girl last night like somebody yelled out something at her and you could tell just how mad she it got, got and she couldn't yeah. continue she got hit by the heckler she got the brunt of the heckler yeah and you could tell it was it was really upsetting her and i mean there was a good 10 15 seconds while she's up there thinking of responses right but she didn't say any of them out loud and then it might have come out too mean. I actually thought she was just going to go punch him. Yeah, and then afterwards I was just trying to be like, hey, uh, we saw what you there, did. Dude. We've all been there, <laughs> yeah. and you did nothing wrong, and 
I told her, if you're any lucky, it'll get a lot worse than this. <laughs> yeah, because right. then That's you'll true. know how to handle it. Yeah. I but, know, it actually, like, made me a little, it's sick, but it made me a little happy. I was like, oh, a new crop is getting... Yeah, they're getting, getting, they're getting, they're getting, they're getting shadow they're on. They're getting burned yeah. for the first time. It's so heartwarming because right. it just because so much that's a great lesson to happened. come from it. Well, yeah. and she in particular, I really like her. She's really she's I like sweet her. I like her funny. too. Um, and but she's new and she's been given a lot of rope. Mm-hmm. Like she gets good spots. She's get, been given some like Petey's Playhouse opportunities. Like for being in her first six months, she's gotten more opportunities than I've gotten in two years. Right. And I think there's a, there might be, and I didn't really talk to her long enough to sort of eke this out, but there might be a little bit of uh, big headedness that's happening because of that, where it's just like, okay, well, I'm, I deserve this type of stuff now. And I deserve this type of respect because of these, these things that I've been getting. And you kind of need some type of turmoil like that to sort of keep you honest. Yeah, I, yeah, right. And I, I don't know. You may be right that there's some big headedness, or it may just be that she. It's been her road has been too soft. No, that I mean, I, I'd say it's a combination of both. Yeah. Like, cause this is no matter how you slice it, it's a hard road, and you got to kind of think of it that way. Like, anytime I have a bunch of good sets, I I start going, oh, bad ones coming. I can feel it <laughs> and anywhere. Also, also um, having a what what we could consider an easy time of it or an easy road going like to start, that might seem like an advantage, but it's really not because. Right. Everyone has to learn the same skills one way or the other. Just because there's more than one road, you know, doesn't mean that one gets there faster or, you know what I mean? Like, because they're, because she's gotten stuff or we're not even talking about her anymore, but because like maybe you, maybe you got success really quickly and then you're unable to perform, you know, you're getting opportunities before you're ready for them. Right. So, or you're. And that's, we've heard that many a times. I, I want to credit this to the right person, but I can't remember who said it, that you're either extremely under-ready or you're way over-ready for Patrice your opportunities. Patrice is one of those people that said that. It might have been Patrice that said that. So, yeah, so getting your opportunities quickly isn't isn't good because once you're out there and once you've been seen, you better be ready for those opportunities. Right. So I would rather be over-ready than under ready. That being said, I waited a long time to move to New York because I wanted to be ready, quote unquote, as good as I felt I could get before going. And I kind of wish that we had just made that move earlier because it really doesn't matter how ready you are. It's going to make you better and it's, and they're going to make you start over anyway. Yeah. Right. So there's no, there is no ready. Um, yeah. If you're, if you're not afraid of the lesson, if you're not afraid of the journey, then the length of time it takes is not going to scare you. And it's never going to be perfect. Like those hits are going to come whether or not, like nobody gets good at handling hecklers by winning to them all the time. You're going to lose a couple bouts with hecklers. You're going to let them get the better of you. Before you learn that you never want that to happen to you again. Right. So everyone needs moments like those. It just kind of, that doesn't make it hurt less. It stings. Oh, yeah. It always stings. Oh, my God. I remember one guy. I was in Baltimore, and this man basically just yelled out, why don't you come clean my kitchen? That would be funnier (laughs) than what you're doing. And I was just like, I don't want to take your mom's job away from he came back he fired back and he won he won that round and i was so embarrassed 
Because he, I think he said something like, my mom would do a better job, <laughs> and she's funnier. And I don't, I didn't have anything to go back to that. I just said, you know, shut up. And <laughs> I had to, like, make the room hospitable for the headliner. So I basically just dug out, but it didn't really win that fight. Right. And I just walked off stage and immediately had things. And I just was like, oh, man, let me back up there. <laughs> but that never happens like yeah, that. Yeah, you're going to so, have to hold it in a chamber till next time. I but did that's actually. What did you have to do? I, I found the chick last night, and I sat I, I, I sat down with her, and I was like, why don't you run me through a couple of the things that you thought of to say after you got off stage? Because I know that you just took a walk, and I know that you thought of some good shit. Mm. So... Let's hear them, right? Because I want so badly. I want. I want to be the comic that I wish that there was around to help had to have mm. helped me with stuff like that. So if somebody had asked me, "Hey, what was the stuff that you could have flamed them with, but it's too late? Get it out so that you can use it next time." Um, but she, she didn't. She didn't want to talk about it, and that's fine. Yeah, she seemed like uh, like it was I, more I, anger than it was jokes. I think. Yeah. yeah, and I I always have to be a little bit wary of how much I'm helping or caring about something like that, especially when it's a female comic, because she could very easily think I'm trying to hit on her. Cause a what? lot of comics, cause a lot of comics are, right. and that's their in. And I'm not gonna lie. The in could work, but it's easier but, for me. Yeah. Cause I'm not trying to do that. It's right. a, it's more of a comforting place, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. For um, sure, it's the sisterhood when you're doing it. I didn't even really re- realize or remember that I was doing that until P.D. Smith McDowell last night said, you know, there's no one doing that right now, and we miss that. You and need you. that. Every scene sort of needs that because really it's hard. I really wanted it to be a friendly and fostering scene. You know, my sister did comedy, and then other women sort of popped in, and they would always be kind of dickish to me, like, because I was, like, the woman and I didn't want to be the only woman and then I'm not the only I'm not even here anymore but like they wanted my spot and I was never like fighting them I was like come up like yeah no I don't if you want my spot come take it like a lot of girls uh uh, unfortunately and I'm not I I, like this is just what I've seen I don't want to of course not all female comics but I've seen a lot of female comics sort of treated like a zero-sum game like if you're there it means that I can't get there if we're both in the same spot. Sadly, uh, a lot of men are to blame for this too because they'll have shows where they could, they, they'll have limits like only one woman could be on a set per night or something like that. Right. I've heard things like this. And because of that, or oh, it might be a chicken or egg type thing, it's like women don't like it all the time. Like I feel like if, if the creek rises, all the ships come up. So sure. it's good if one person gets something because that means everybody can get it. And... Very often, I, I feel like it happens the smaller the scene, it happens more. But if there are like a, a few women competing for spots, then it becomes a, 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 a nasty competition when it doesn't have to be. Everybody should yeah. just sort of be helping each other. I don't really ride that wave either. Like, you know, as a woman in comedy, I don't really, it doesn't really matter too much to me um, about that. See, I have like, I mean, as a white male in comedy, as a Jewish white male in comedy, we are in abundance. <laughs> yeah, like, there's a lot I of actually think 
that I'm at a greater disadvantage than either of the two of you. Like yeah. you're African American, you're female. Like when I, I I produce a show here once a month, which by the way, I want to coordinate with you guys next time you're going to be here because I want to get you on that show if you're interested. It's, yeah, for sure. It's a showcase talk show combination, so it's really unique and cool. Oh, cool. And it's tomorrow night, but you guys are leaving town, so yeah. you can't be yeah. here for it. But um, I think uh, it would be really fun to have you on that show. So that's a separate issue, but. You know, when I when I put my show together, I usually have four comedians and I leave room for an out-of-towner. If someone from out-of-town wants to get on the show, then I'll put a fifth person on. And that's what's happening tomorrow. And I always try to have one person of color, one woman, and then I will have two white men. Not because I want two white men. That's your option. But that's like, I've got a billion of them, so I'm going to get them all in eventually, right. two at a time. And I try to have a diverse palette up there for lots of reasons, mm-hmm. you know? But the biggest problem for me is running low on non-white male talent. Not because non-white males aren't talented. There just aren't a lot of them here. Yeah. I, I mean, but if, if, you, if all you have is, like, funny, then that's fine if it just happens to be for white males. And as long as it's funny, you know, we can all look past that because putting black or female or non-white in intentionally just to just to diversify it up, you know. Yeah, you want people to keep coming back to that thing because it's consistently funny. That means they know no matter who you put on there, it's going to be a good it's show. It's your word. Right. Rather than it's like, okay, well, I guess we're in the black block tonight, or yeah. I guess we're in the female block. It, 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 when you kind of, it's a, it's a good and well-meaning thing, but there's all it also runs the risk right. of I don't want to feel like I'm on the show it. just because I'm a woman or because I'm... So let me just clarify... Uh, funny comes first. Absolutely. For me. I mean, I'm not putting anyone oh, sure. up who's not funny. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Because well, it's your show. Right. Yeah, and, and for all the reasons you just said. Yeah. Uh, but I am conscious of, like, not just wanting to have another white male comic venue. Yeah. yeah. Now, in New York, it's a little different because currency for a show, funny, like, in D.C., funny does come first, and I think diversity just occurs naturally after that. Right. Um, but in D.C., just by going to the mics... And being funny and being consistent, your value can be, uh, your humor is the value that you bring to a show. People will see you, they'll say you're funny. You're gonna you're gonna um, legitimize my show because you're funny. So I'm gonna put you on. Right. And just doing mics and being funny at the mics can do that for you. And then the word of mouth will get you bigger stuff, and then your effort will get you bigger stuff. But in New York, being funny is uh, not currency enough for a show. Um, necessarily Mm. because shows your currency is having another show, like having your own show where they give you time and then you can give them time. Right. So stage time can be used as currency and credits. You, if you have credits that legitimizes their show, that is currency. Got it. Uh, and then if you know someone, if you can make a connection for them, that is currency for them. Right. So what you can do for them is is more currency than you just being funny and legitimizing the show. It's not going to get you a spot. It's a distant third behind other stage time or having credits. And so that's like a double-edged, that's like a chicken or the egg situation too because like I need credits, but I also need to get on your shows to get to the point where I can get credits. Right. Um, so how do I get one or the other? <laughs> I know it's funny. Like I, I have that perspective. I mean, I'm a business owner. I've been entrepreneurial my whole life. Like 
So I get that whole dynamic of things. And when I started my show here, when I finally started producing a show, I thought it would do more for me than it has done. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of like, I would have something to offer that people would want and it would buy me some, some ins and some other things. But in, in the South, it's really this good old boys network. And you're either in that circle or you're not. And they don't seem to care what you can offer them in terms of opportunity. Uh, and they almost don't care how funny you are. Like it's, it's, it's the relationships seem to come first and then everything else comes second. Well, that's just something to get used to. I think it's a, it's a, it's an entertainment business. So yeah, it's going to be like that. I think. And people put their friends on things all the time. Yeah. And, uh, but that's the other reason I sort of like to go out. And it wasn't because I had the ulterior motive of trying to get something or get some type of connection. I just like being around funny people. It's right. like a much more enriching life for me if I'm around people that are constantly thinking in, in terms of humor or having broad thought. And I've been starting to go to New York Comedy Club a lot in Manhattan because that's one of the places where I'm like, oh, this feels like I can make a home here. Mm. I, I like this place. It feels like it's very supportive of comics. Uh, they've let me in there a few times and didn't really know me from Adam, but they'll just have me in a green room. And just some of the conversations I hear in the, in these rooms, they're not really so much about make, like the mechanics of a joke or um, what people are getting in the scene. There are very issued debates going on. There are very nuanced conversations happening. And I'm just like, wow, this is exactly who I enjoy being around. People that are that have their brains turned on and there's a lot of great conversations happening. I'm like, that's a good night for me. And I'd, I'd rather, I'd definitely rather be doing that and hanging out with these people than watching TV a lot of times. And that's the thing that, uh, we're still, I'm still trying to make this sign go up over our door. We didn't, you didn't move to New York to watch TV. It's a, it's a Creek Mm. in the cave bumper sticker that we really need put on our door. Yeah. But I also really like how we can go, out to see a show and it's not like we're here in Asheville where we're going to the mic it's like we'll go to stand up New York or or the stand and we'll just drop in and Nikki Glaser Dan Soder Ari Shafir Jay Okerson like big name like people names yeah. every day people like, that you can go Im- watch, are influences we can go watch really like top tier comedy for free every day if we wanted to. Yeah. And the idea that eventually one day we can stand with them, which is actually not, it's like, I describe living in New York as um, you've never felt closer to your dreams or further away at That's the same time. That's a great time. way to describe it. That's exactly how it feels. Like you're struggling and it feels impossible, but it's actually the place where struggle could lead to something. Um, I mean, not to say that it couldn't, in other cities, but it just, you feel closer and further away. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. So it's really cool. Uh, and you can't get that here. I mean, occasionally someone will drop in and you can watch it, but every night, I mean, and every, any time there's any, every night there's a hundred comedy shows to go check out. And you really should be doing that when you're there, playing the hang around game, putting your face in, being seen. That's what's gonna uh, maybe help. Um, it worked for me. I mean, I went to a show the other last week around the corner from where I live. It's a weekly show. I happen to know the guy that hosts it and I just went and just by sitting there and watching his show, I got a date for it. So that's, that's, yeah, it's cool. It's like, it's very cool. Yeah. It's exciting. It's it's just a bar show. Um, but I'm not going to minimize it. Like I have a show. Right. 
So. And and so how long will you be doing? I think it. They look like ten minute spots. Okay, that's great. Yeah, which I now remember I can do. <laughs> Last night was the, the longest you've gone in a no, while. No, I mean we did. Oh no, because you did right. Yeah, you did. I did uh, twenty. Right. Yeah, that was tough, man. I I've done twenty. I've done thirty. I've done it. I just don't. I didn't get. A, haven't gotten a chance to do that in a while. So it's kind of nice to be able to stretch my legs and take a deep breath and know that when I'm, you know, just sort of messing around, it's still working. Right. Um, because it's a forgiving city, but also because I've got a couple years on the rest of the people that most of the people that you, you're seeing at the mic. Yeah, it's 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 always sort of nice to be reminded that you've gotten to a certain spot with this. It's so easy to you're forget. like, oh man, I can't, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And then you go and you're like, oh, I've been doing this for years. I'm fine. Yeah. Right. That's always a good reminder to get. Yeah, I've done 30 minutes twice, and I'm in the process of possibly booking my first 45-minute show, which is going to stretch the shit out of me, you know? But if it, it depends on the room, because I just did what was supposed to be 12 minutes and ended up doing 18, got yelled at for it. <laughs> um, but I was absolutely killing the entire time, you know? And, and, and more and more as the show went on. Like, And I had a lot of really good organic crowd work, and it was just one of those times where, you know... a Maybe arguably it was never a 12-minute set. Maybe it was 14 or something like that. But it stretched organically to 18. And and I didn't go near, you know, tapping the well for all my other material. Like, I, I really had a nominal amount of my stuff on the docket for that night. And it was enough to fill 18 really strong minutes. Yeah. I was kind of writing a line this past week of, um, I know I have 20 minutes of material, but now I, I now that I'm being given the chance to work on it, I want to try and write a set a different way mm. um, because we've been talking about you know we had we had this idea last week where it was like if you're a ride the wave comic, you shouldn't be writing a tight twenty minute set that you need to adhere to. You should be writing a skeleton set that if you need to get back on track, you can reference. Right. But you should be allowed to roam and you should be experimenting with that. So I wrote. I'm, I've been doing this thing that's totally different than what I would normally do where I would memorize a set and I would have a very clear opener and closer and all that and I would just write the jokes that I would I could come up with off the top of my head because that's how I'm going to have to think of them up, up there. Right. So I would just write lists in no particular order and uh, still I have an opener and a closer but when I'm that loose... Every single time, I would do my closer in the middle <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not um, regulating it at right, all. Yeah. And then, so yeah, the closings have been sloppy, but not bad. Just I need to. I'm working it out. I'm trying to figure out a new way of doing it. And I would say that each time felt a lot better, and it felt again like I captured the naturality that I was going for. Which is the most important thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, so they don't know that I just told my closer. They don't know that I'm freaking out. Um, well, I, I did realize how much I sweat after that much time. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It was pretty rough. What I did last night, and I did it the night before at the auditorium too, it's kind of, it's what I'm trying, I'm experimenting with a new sort of technique of being up there, which is I'm trying to actually initiate more crowd work, and then I have bits that I can tie in. I'm trying to have the bit organically respond to something that someone says. So it feels like right. I'm, like I just made that up in this moment. 
you know, for them. I used to do that too, um, but I realized that you can't really dig- go into a crowd that doesn't want to play with you. You don't want to like go into that, like. Sure. I, That's I, the risk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, if somebody, I will welcome. I've always been this way. I welcome any interruption. Because yeah. it's usually whatever's going to come out of it is nine times out of ten funnier and more organic than what I what I wrote, what I prepared. So how do you deal with that issue? Because I've had that happen, too, where my peak moments in the show were those funny, organic interactions between me and the crowd. And then suddenly my really hard, ground-out, prepared material falls comparatively flat. Well, that just means that you need to start writing more jokes like the natural interaction that you had. Hmm. That's where your funny is. If that's, they were, Herbie and Petey and Carrie told me that for years that any time I went into the crowd or I had an interruption, that was, that was better than what I prepared. Yeah, when I've I've said when she shines, it's when something's going wrong. When everything's going wrong. When something's not planned and she sort of has to work on her feet, she's incredibly good with that. I think she just has more fun with that, and it's hard to sort of sit down and write a joke if that's not what you want to do. Right, and that's where my that's why I started doing comedy because I had a quick wit and I had you know, I was snippy and I was sarcastic, and so those were the the moments when I realized that I was funny. I didn't. I never thought I was a super strong joke writer, so I can't really. I still don't really know how to harness that ability into joke writing. What I do know is that I can be up there and try my best to capture it. Right. Um, and so in with that in mind, it's always different. Yeah. It's sort of hard to write a joke from start to finish and nail it down. I've been telling a, a story about uh, Herbie kicking over our bong for months now. It's my favorite joke. It's got a skeleton, but it's sort of different every time. Mm. Um, because I don't want to write it down. I don't want to ever say that it's this is how it has to sound every time because I've noticed that when I start to sound wooden, when I'm noticing that it sounds wooden, right. it's actually already been wooden for some time. Right. And nobody is warm to that. You don't ever want to see a comic that is doing an act that would be the same if it was to a wall. Right. They need, you need to feel the energy of these people. And I think by seeing them as individual crowds and, and ensuring that it's going to be different every time, it's just better. I would like to say that I don't, there have been times when things were going too wrong for me to come out of. There was one night I was at the improv uh, opening for, hosting for Alonzo Bowden, and they had a new sound guy, and he switched the mics out, and he, and I walked out on stage, the lights never came on, and then the mic was not on. So I'm up there, the crowd's clapping, and it's dark, and right. the mic's not on. Because he had nothing. And so the I had to stand there and wait for that. I can't fix that. Right. I can only pray that it gets fixed soon. Yeah, and everybody runs into something like that. So you oh have my a, God. a very quick gut check moment. Like, what do you do? Like, I remember a couple times I've had mics not work or cut out on me in the middle of the set. And it's like, all right, well, I'm going to give it a couple times to work. And if it doesn't work, We're gonna I'm just going to throw it away. Yeah. And then just start uh, talking my act out loud, like just trying to project my voice just so they know. Like, because a, a crowd is going to follow you as long as they know that you're going to be legitimate about it. It's like that line in American President, they want to be led, but they want to be led by somebody that can believe in. Right. It's like, if you're relying on this and this one thing can sort of derail your entire set, 
I mean, I think they would understand that. But if they see you throw that away and still continue, they know that you were prepared for that and you were confident in your talent and what you're doing up there. So they're willing to go along with you a little bit more. And it earns you some currency that way, I think. I don't think I really... I think I dug out of a hole of the of the mic and the lights for the first five minutes of that set, but then Alonzo was like, you know, you were you were coming out of a hole there, and by the end of it, you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. There was also one show. I think I did pretty well most of those shows, except the Saturday early show because his crowd is largely African American, and um, it it wasn't scaring me. But that one, there was one show where it just they didn't like me, and. Uh, I get off stage and he's like, "Ooh, they were judging you." <laughs> <laughs> were you doing a lot of Jewish humor? I uh, no, I don't remember. Probably. I, don't <laughs> I, remember I noticed that, that I when I do Jewish humor to an African American crowd, they do not get it by and large. Like they just don't seem. Do you feel like you? I mean, you live in New York and you live in D.C., so you probably around a lot more Jews than blacks well, in the South. But we haven't really seen an abundance of any one type of crowd in New York yet. Yeah, it's kind of hard. Like, the one thing we've seen is a lot of apathetic comics waiting for yeah, their turn. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah, right. But getting yeah. them to laugh is, like, fun, but it's also, like, it's a pretty surefire guarantee that it won't work in a crowd. <laughs> you don't want to hear a bunch of comics laughing at whatever you just said. Right, I know. I have, like, my, one of my first real jokes, and arguably still might be my best joke, is what my comedy teacher said is a back-of-the-room joke. Yeah. You know, and I have had... Big comics compliment me on that joke when I come off stage. That's the only thing they say. They're like, that joke is fucking great. Right. But the audience was like, are we yeah. even allowed to laugh at that? You know, like they're not sure at all. See, I've always enjoyed being a bit of a back of the room comic because that's those are the laughs I can trust. Because if I could fool comics, I could fool everybody else. So my biggest goal was to try and figure out how to make back of the room jokes for the front of the room. Mm, right. So I can get everybody on the same plan. If I get, the goal is to try to get as many people laughing as possible. I know there are some schools of thought that says, well, it's not good if you have everybody laughing. I'm like, well, I'm trying to do that because if I'm doing that and I can do that consistently, I could, I could eat. Right. So that's something that was always very important to me, and I like to do that. It's a, it's a great challenge with the writing to try to get something that both audiences and comics could laugh at. I love doing that. There was a guy that used to do urban shows um, here in Asheville, uh, Joe Green, and uh, back at the Magnetic Theater, he used to run shows, mm. and like he even had bigger shows, bigger rooms. He booked me a couple of times, and there was one time that... I mean, I was still new. I was still under four years in. Um, speaking of people who got opportunities before they were ready for them. Right. You know, I was hosting at a club here in Asheville after, like, three months. Um, Which because one? they At Funny Business. Oh. Um, they just needed someone that they could pay far less than what it was worth to do the job. <laughs> and I was like, payment for comedy? Okay. And I'm, and I'm basically eating it. But they're like, how bad can she really mess it up in ten minutes, you know? Um, they found out. <laughs> I mean, I still I still would work there, but they would also make me hand out flyers and run the door. Yeah, And then yeah. they'd be like, oh, and you're going to host. And I'd yeah. be like, oh, my God. I've worked the door and hosted at Funny Business, but I like that. I like working the door. It's fun for yeah. me. I get to meet everybody. Yeah. And then... I, I don't like it. I, now I realize it's like you seat them, and then you get up on the stage. Like, I had a lady tip me $5 once for the seat that we gave her, and then I'm, like, up there, and I'm like, did you know your $5 was going to be on stage? <laughs> and it's just corny. Um, but I remember this one show, mostly black, and 
I got off the stage and I felt really good about it. I was like, I wouldn't even feel like I did well. But I would say I felt like I did as well as I could have expected at that time, given my material right. and my skill level. And I went out into the bar area and someone, this, uh, this uh, black man came up next to me and he was just like, hey, don't give up. I was like, what do you mean? That went well. <laughs> His advice is don't give up. I kind of want to now. <laughs> I thought that went good. <laughs> That's so funny. Someone's encouraging at the one time you're like, oh, yeah. I didn't think I needed that kind of encouragement. I mean, just people now. don't realize they're, you know, yeah, you, you don't do well and they come up to you like, well, I thought it was funny. I don't know what everyone else was thinking. Yeah. No. Yeah. People are always... It's all standard I, stuff. Generally speaking, I think people have the best intentions when they say stuff like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's why every Schumer comparison I get, I just say thank you. So yeah, that's good. what's next for you guys? I know you're driving home today, but what's like... I mean, did, did the two of you have any plan to go out on the road together for an extended period of time? Like you just Not did after this, this week. week. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> this eclipse really oh, took it out Lord. of us. Uh, yeah, we're going to have I a moratorium actually, on that for yeah, a second. Yeah, I plan on spending at least a couple of days in separate rooms. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, I like we. I'm. I know for myself I'm trying to... My my goal was always to try and work the clubs and get past at some of these major clubs so I can sort of just be working in the city, and that's what I do for my job. I go out every day and do a bunch of clubs and in a row and start stacking little bits of money, and then I can do the road work on the weekends. If I could work New York clubs during a week and a road work on the weekends, that's all I've ever wanted to do in my entire life. And the fact that I'm already a working comic in new york is like i'm easily the happiest i've ever been so i'm just eager to continue that okay so now i understand so so i always like a little piece of this show to educate mm -hmm. comedians and and me um so tell me what that means because i didn't understand and i was going to ask you this anyway when you were saying earlier that you really want to get in with the clubs there and i didn't know if that was your end game but now i understand a little bit more so how does that work? Like if you're if you get passed at the different clubs, explain what that means and explain how that's when whole you're passed at a club. It means that you can uh, you're on their roster and then they put you on their real shows. And if they put you on the real shows, that means you're getting paid for your spots. Okay. And so you'll get put on a schedule somewhere, and you'll have to go there at a certain point and do your set, and okay. they'll pay you for that set. And then if you're passed at like three clubs. Say you'll have one at the stand at 10.30, one at the stand-up New York at 11, and one at another club at 11.30. So you're just going to these clubs, doing your set, and then going to someplace else and doing another set. So if if my goal worked out, I can do that during the week. Not have to, Well, I might still have to be bartending or doing some other type of supplementary job, but... I'm. I have times in the week where I'm going out and I'm working, doing comedy. Kirby just wants to be working. That's yeah, always. That's how, all. I, that's all I've ever wanted. It's always how he's described what he wants to me too. Where he's like, you know, when we talk about what I want, my goals. He always starts with, I want to be working. So, if I get an opportunity for more work, that's great. But if I don't get it, I'm already working. And if I do get it, I get more work. It's always been about the work. Yeah. Some people want to be famous and get their brand out and but then there's the soldiers like Herbie who will always be working and as long as they're working and it's comedy they're going to be happy. Right. And that's really noble. Um it's not always going to be lucrative, but 
his currency is his happiness. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love doing it. And I, I would like to act. I'd like to do some voiceover work. I would like to do all these things. But whatever I do, it would, be, it would be to make more people see me do stand-up. Because I do love that. And I, will, I, I know I'm going to do that forever. Stand-up saved my life on yeah. several different occasions. I want to keep doing it as long as I can. And I don't trust success because success is vague. And I don't trust fame because fame is very fickle. But what thing, one thing I can trust on is as long as I'm working, doing this job. And I'm in, I'm in one of the greatest cities in the world doing it. The fact that I'm a working comic in New York is a dream. So now that I'm here, I'm like, all right, now what else can I do? So there will be a point when I'm working clubs in New York and I'm doing my road work too. And then I'm like, okay, where else can I go from this spot? The goal is always going to change. So I'm confused when you say that you are a working comic in New York mm -hmm. and then you're trying to become a working comic. I don't comic. work in, I, I don't he's work a working in the, comic and he's in New York. I get paid to... for doing comedy, but I would like to also get paid for doing comedy in New York. Okay, I'd... so you're not so your your paid work is not generally in New York. Not, not yet. yet. It's road work. Yes. Okay, and so you're trying to get the New York paid yeah. work happening too. Okay, now I get it. Yeah. Because you said I'm a paid comic in New York. He's a working comic, a working comic in New York. Yeah. Right. I'm in New York. He's a working comic living in New York. Yeah. Right. And we we just moved there. We just did a year there. So yeah, it's just it's been now a year this now. is the beginning. So yeah. now I'm just trying yeah. to Yeah. I feel like it took a whole year to really get settled into it too. Yeah. Um, settled into living in that city. It take uh, yeah, it's it's hard. And where do you live? We live in Queens in Astoria. And do you have two rooms? We no. have a one bedroom where we have a living room and a bedroom. For years we shared one bedroom and a three bedroom. Uh, with other people and so we literally just had one room to live in and so it was really important to me that we had a second room that we could exist in yeah i stay up all night so she yeah. kind of had to have a room so she could go i to was sleep. fine with it i was fine living in a in one room until i wasn't it was <laughs> it was fine it was fine and then it wasn't fine it was too much it wasn't enough space we we, we stayed together pretty much all the time uh, so his road work is great for both of us because we get time to ourselves you know julie scoggins yeah. Oh, yeah, Julie I Scoggins. love Julie. Yeah. Julie Scoggins, he uh, featured for her once a couple years ago, and she was so nice uh, to him and so complimentary that at the end of the weekend, she brought him back on stage and made sure that her audience knew that it was a two-headliner show. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've That's known her really... the entire time Carla I've been doing stand-up. Carla Bove once. He opened for Carla Bove, and Herbie had he was having like a problem with his car or something, and he only had one shirt left for sale for merch, and Carla Bove auctioned it off to the highest bidder during his headlining set. And how much did it go for? 80 Oh, my God, that's so cool. He got me $80 and, yeah. for a shirt. So he's got a lot of stories that we could just do an entire show on because the, some of them are really incredible. It's fun. like, And even like even when it sucks, it's great. And you can't really say that about too many other things. And I think anybody that hears me talk about stand-up can tell how much I love it. Just hear me talk about it. Because it is, it's what I wish I found him. it earlier, earlier, to be honest with you. Because I've been doing it since I was 20. I'm about to be 37. Yeah, my goal when, we, when I met him was never to date him. It was to pick his brain much like this. And then it just turned into a date. And then it turned into a, a partnership. <laughs> That's but that's the best kind. I mean, yeah, yeah. Because I never wanted to be with a comic. And our goals are all. different. And I think being with him, I, I sort of did have to realize that our goals are different. But um, we both believe that the other one is going to be successful. In the way that they want to be. Yeah. And when to get back to your question about, you know, what's the goal now? I mean, what he was saying when I hear him talking about being a working comic in New York, 
comma. Um, <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> I still hear, I still hear, he doesn't say success. He doesn't want to be successful. But in my mind, his definition of success is working. Right. So he does want to be successful. And success is defined as working in comedy. Um, I also want to be successful, but I define success differently. And I've actually been spending a lot of time thinking about how I have changed my definition of, of success to am I able to create? Which leads back to happiness. I mean, for me, to be successful, I want to be happy. And I believe that creativity is the key to happiness. So as long as I feel like I can create and I am creating and I'm feeling happy, it doesn't really matter what I achieve because because I'm okay with what's coming out. I don't want to feel blocked. That's like a huge... I, I mean, I spent years just feeling super blocked and... I got physically ill from that. Mm. And so success would be feeling centered and happy and creative. And I think if you feel that way and you are creating from that place, there's no way that things won't happen. And I don't really want to pick what I want. I would take any opportunity that utilize that. Um, But if you are creating a lot, you're throwing out a lot of different... You're casting a lot of nets anyway. So... Um, I'm writing a book that I will get published and I'm hoping my goal would be to have a a book that's published and then (laughs) ideally there's a tour and then I can utilize the skill that I have talking to the public for however long it's been at that point. I'm going to guess 15 years. Well, that's cool. Well, I know that um, I would like some advance notice next time you're coming back to Asheville. Yeah, sorry, we didn't really... Well, we didn't really know each other, but now we do. Yeah. Well, we actually remember you from the festivals back in the day, because I remember seeing... I know I have a couple of pictures with you in them from years ago. No, it wasn't me. It had to have been. Like, I don't know. I, yeah, no, I, I'm going to have to check I now. wasn't at the festivals. I went to my first Asheville Comedy Festival this year. We were huh. There was another guy that you kind of look like. But. It might, it's got to be, but it's going to bug me now. I remember meeting you last year, but just very briefly. Yeah, I remember that. I remembered it today. Because <laughs> you said last night you introduced yourself. Yeah. And reintroduced yourself. And yeah. I was like, hey, you know, and I knew I knew you, but I was like, and I couldn't even hear your name when you said it. You know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I get that. My sister's still in town. She still does stand up. People think we're the same person sometimes. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't, you, I think you said that to me last time too. Like, so I think a year ago we had exactly the same interaction we had last night. Mm. Um, but now I, I feel like I really do know who you are (laughs) and, uh, and I certainly know who you are, Herbie, Uh. so I will not be confusing you guys. Yeah. We'll give you notice next time. I mean, it's about a once a year trip for me. My parents live down here. Asheville is my home. Yeah. I've been coming to Greenville and Asheville for over 10 years and since that's I was how we college. met we i was met gonna at, ask how did you meet we met at lacquer asheville off uh eight uh seven years ago were both of you performing or one of you performing or? i was on the local showcase that year which i did for like three or four years okay. um eventually they let me into the the main stage but not the main stage but the highland stage what's the local showcase they used to do when the first there was like a couple years where they did you know they did wednesday through saturday right uh of the festival but then they added a local showcase on tuesday oh um for just locals cuz that was like before they were putting in a couple locals like that was before we were good enough for 
That was before it was that big. It was before it was that big, and it was before the the comics that were local to Asheville had enough experience to put into the show. Because now they're putting in three or four every year, um, which eventually we all got. But they opened it up to us by saying we could be we could consider ourselves comics artists at the festival. But they put us on a local showcase on Tuesdays. Got it. So the first year. That I was actually the first year that I did it. I was on the local showcase. We met that Tuesday. Um, Herbie was staying in Greenville. And then we made plans to meet up on Monday in Greenville because I used to drive down to Greenville for No Expectations Monday night every week for yeah. like two years I did that. Um, and I would have a caravan every week. We'd all go rush That's down the way there. to do it, yeah. Um, but that one day, uh, that Monday, it was back, that, back in the day the festival was still in July. Um, so I remember it as being July 17th, the day that I drove down to Greenville to pick this guy's brain because I just thought he was really funny because I actually – we met that Tuesday, but the first time I had seen him was a year before that at Tomato Tuesdays, the day that I went to the open mic to see if I wanted to try stand-up. And there was this guy headlining, pacing around the room like a crazy person, and my first thought was, well, that doesn't look like fun. <laughs> oh, I thought your first thought was, I got to meet him. No, my first <laughs> thought was, why is he pacing? He, There's no way he's funny. Um, and he was so funny. And I just remember that as like the first night he was the headliner. Yeah. And you all saw me pacing last night. Like that never goes he away. He always paces. And it's not because I'm nervous either. I just like to get used to moving mm. and get used to sort of just walking around and being in my space. The first thing I like to do when I'm up there is sort of command my space and that's just part of it. It's right. like, it's kind of like marking your territory in a room. But the <laughs> when I when I met her it was just so happened to be a weekend I kind of got stuck on the road and I was part of the Asheville Fest. And um like I was supposed to be gone for a couple of weeks, but my car died on the way down to Asheville. Mm. So I ended up being gone from home for about 2 months. Oh. But I met her kind of in the beginning of that cuz I did the festival at the beginning. And then she came down, uh, we hung out. And mind you, comedy, Asheville and Greenville comedy is the start and is the sort of reminiscent, like, epicenter of our of our relationship. It's always we so it's nice to revisit it. Always. Yeah, and it's like we still have a bunch of friends down here and everything, and they know us from both parts. So they every were... time we come back, we still have that whole network that's still around. And then they remember, I mean, yeah, it, first it was, you know, this headliner is, is spending time in our community, and that's awesome. We want to learn from him. Then him and I started dating, and then eventually I moved up to D.C. to be with him. Um, and I encouraged everyone else to do the same. Like, right. I can't express how much moving to D.C. and having to compete in that market forced me to get better. Yeah, just being in a bigger scene kind of demands that you sort of rise to meet it. I can only imagine. I remember Herbie uh, meeting you at Pulp last year. Um, yeah, I remember you being there uh, because I, among the many things I remember, I remember your joke about you used to have an afro, but having an afro now with a couple. Were you doing yeah. that joke a year ago? No, I'm not sure. I might have been. I might. It might have been brand new. That might have been the first place I ever did it. Okay. Well, you definitely. That last night was the second time I've heard it. Yeah. And I've only seen you. Once or twice. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen you earlier this week. Right. Like, right. So um, I remember, yeah, I remember that. So It's a good joke. Yeah, it's, it's 
That one's kind of goofy. Like, a lot of times she'll come up and tell me about jokes or reference some jokes I told. I'm just like, what? Oh, yeah, that was a joke I told, and I don't remember how it goes. So if it was something that you remember from then, it must have been newer then. That happened to me the other night, too. You know, being free and, like, not writing but a skeleton of a set list. Sometimes jokes, I'm reminded of jokes that I didn't write down. Mm. I started one the other night that I did not remember how it went, and I started it. And I just had to be like, oh, my God. I don't know the next line. I had to just say it out loud and move on because I don't remember it. But I also don't remember it because it's not that great of a joke, you know. And then you were asking me about it. I'm like, I'm not helping you. Well, you know, that's part of being (laughs) loose and free. This was your big skeleton idea. You're on your own. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't his his idea, but it was his. No, no. He was saying that to you. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, like, yeah, live or die by it. That's the other thing, too. I want to make it very clear that, like, because we are together, we we are not together in common. We're really not. Yeah, It's something where you have to have your own autonomy. We're not a tandem deal. And she's got to learn her lessons on her own just as I got to learn my lessons on my own. Like, that's... I feel like that's paramount because our comedy can't be linked because then it just becomes something different than what we need it to be. And that's where it gets odd. So if she's flailing up there, she's like, oh, hey, come back here. Like, no, you got to pretend like I'm not here. He also, like, you know, he wasn't extremely helpful when I moved to D.C. And I was like, I had <laughs> I had to, like, get shows. And I was like, so how do you get the improv? You know, just a basic question that any comic would ask, a right. seasoned comic like him. Well, so how do you get the improv? And he's like, you know, you just, um, you just like, get it sometimes. Yeah, and I'm like, you, that's you, not... You just, you have to get out there but, and you, you know, have to be seen I'm glad that bit. he did that. I'm sorry. It no, it's fine. I'm glad that he did that because then when I got it, there was no question that, that I got, got it. Yeah. Well, there was no question on my end, but right. to this day, there are still people that can push my buttons by saying, oh, that's a good new joke. Um, who wrote it? You know? Yeah. I get that. Ralphie May, he has this really cool video of him doing like a talk at uh, the comedy store. They have this sort of comedy school sort of thing where they get, bring in people like him to talk to the class. Yeah, I have one done by Ari Shafir that yeah, I like. Really oh, yeah, I have to watch that too. I, I, I like absorbing as much of that stuff as I can. Yeah, me too. And one of the things Ralphie May said to the women, he's like, don't fuck comics because if you ever succeed, everyone will say, well, it's just because you slept with someone. Like you won't get credit for that. You won't get the credit you deserve. Right. You know, and... I do feel that. Um, That's what, why I always kind of wanted to keep it as separate as possible, just because didn't I didn't even... want that... I don't I don't want that to ever have to be an option. Um, because, again, like, it's it says, like, oh, yeah, uh, don't sleep with comics, but at the same time, it's like, you're going to end up around the people that are doing the same things that you're doing, so invariably there's going to be some cross-pollination there. I always made... I always added the caveat, like... You get one, you don't get two. Yeah. <laughs> you better right. pick one because right. as soon as it's two, then you're then you're sleeping with comics. Right. Um, I, I do feel like at first maybe it, I was a little bit more worried about that, but at this point it's been seven years. Sure, totally. So, yeah. um, and I think that people do sort of – I think if anyone that knows us well enough knows that what we do on stage is very different, like he couldn't really help me. No. With what I'm trying to do on stage. Like, he'll give me he'll give me an idea, and I'll go, that doesn't really work into how I'm trying to do it. So right. um, I don't usually take his advice unless it's, like, about, like, changing the order of a word or, like, something small like yeah. that. Yeah, she's a colleague, not a project. 
and that's something that is not it wasn't really even hard for me to try to remember because the whole reason I'm able to even be around her is because I think she's funny and I believe in her talent. To, if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to sit around somebody I thought wasn't funny. To that point, I always respected how um, when we met, he was ten years in, and I was one year in. Right. I still to this day wonder how he was able to be around someone that was only a year in with ten years on me. I don't even like talking to comics that are under a year and let alone be with them so i always took that as the highest praise from him that not only did he see something in me at a year end he didn't hold it against me he also sat there and watched me make a lot of rookie mistakes and he had the patience for that um i just i'm continuously i think back on it now and i'm just like amazed that he was even willing to do that i'm an outstandingly good person yeah <laughs> I think so. I'm, I'm really getting that oh no i just I'm, uh, I nobody want... ever knows what sort of attracts you to somebody else and then it's I, yeah. something that happened completely independent of any planning or anything like that and it just so happened it ended up to work out i was gonna say i think there were reasons he was spending time with you beyond whether you were one year or five years in as a comic like i'm yeah i had a car <laughs> At the time, it was pretty advantageous to have. I lent him my car to take it to for the weekend to, uh, for gigs in Atlanta. We known each other a week. Yeah, um, that's right. just because I, I take just, it back. It was totally not merit based. <laughs> that's just because I, I mean, good people acknowledge good people. I think that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, and like I enjoyed hanging out with her, and it was uh, really easy to talk to her. And oh, stop! Uh, oh, I'm stopping now. But like, <laughs> was, wait, I'm almost done. Right, but I mean, that's how people tend to link up anyway. So I, I think I the thing I like about it is not like comedy was the wasn't the driving force. It was just sort of the impetus behind us. Right. Uh, like it was the stage in which we were able to meet each other. But even now, I mean, as we've been together for years, he's seen me go through, you know, what he calls my first comedy crisis. I'm pretty sure that there was a second comedy crisis, and he's just been there throughout all of it to. Give me with but he has a hundred mantras that will just get you out talk you out of any problem that you're having in comedy. So what are some of them? Well, I already told you one of them, which is um, if your goal is to be working and um, actually there was a different one. There was um, you were talking about what you what is owed to you, and that's a good one. Oh yeah, I love that one, and I wanted to tell it to that girl last night because there are certain people that think, oh, you're supposed to be li listening to me because I'm on stage, yeah, or because I've been coming here a certain amount of time, I should be getting this spot or something. And it was a comic named Joe Robinson, and he was talking about somebody else, but it's something I write in every book that I start. And he said, you were entitled to nothing because so little is required of you. And I love that. I love that. Because yeah. there's a lot of big headedness that could happen in comedy, and you think you're supposed to be getting something because you're this many years in, or this, or that, and the third. And remembering that you're entitled to nothing because so little is required of you helps you focus on what's really important. Just like do the job that you're supposed to be doing instead of wondering what you're supposed to be getting from whatever like nobody you're not owed anything because you showed up and then the other one which i was trying to spit out earlier which we already sort of talked about a little bit is when you get an opportunity like if you got an audition like a big audition and you're freaking out because you could get something big out of it the best way to think of it is you have this opportunity and what could lead to it 
more work. But if nothing comes from it, you're already working. So right. it's a it's a way to absolve yourself of the worry of overthinking your set because what's the worst that could happen? You're already working. Right. You have a show that might lead to more, but if it doesn't, it doesn't lead to less. Yeah, get out of your own head. Yeah. And there's no sense in being scared of anything if you're prepared for it. So the best thing to do is just to prepare for everything. I also hear him in my head every time I want to put up the Jew worry hands. <laughs> <laughs> I feel my hands moving to do that. And Anytime actually, she has to do that is like, you're, <laughs> the joke's not funny if you have to go, huh? And he also, huh? yeah, and I, that's why I leave the mic in the stand for the most part. You can't really... You can't do Jew worry hands holding a mic. Yeah, and he also sort of was able to point out to me when he would I would do a voice that he calls game show announcer. Yeah, where it's where you get really hammy, like when when you're being overly theatrical, and the reason and you're doing that subconsciously because it's joke, not funny. If you have to, funny. yeah, if you have to try to sell something like that, you know it's not funny. So why are you trying to rope me into? It's it? a double-edged sword for me because I do have this resource next to me from a very early age in comedy that not everyone gets. So I feel very lucky to have that. Um, though it's not luck to keep it, but it's worked. Lucky to have it, worked to keep it. But I also wonder where I would be now if we hadn't met, if we hadn't linked up. Like, what? Where would I be in comedy now if we had never met? Would I? I don't want to. I don't really think I would have been quote unquote like better off. But I might have. I might have gone down a different path. I might have learned different things. Yeah, you might I be a lawyer or a doctor. I, I think you might still be here. I might still be here in Asheville. Talking about the importance of staying in Asheville and not leaving your home scene, and that like yeah, well the home scene might look different if I was still here. Probably. Because um, you know Kelly came in and did slice of life, created her own, created her own scene with Michelle because I don't think she really liked the aggressive nature that the Disclaimer Lounge has, so she mm. created a safer space. Kelly who? Kelly Rowe. Kelly Rowland. Oh yeah, I don't think I ever met her. That's okay. Um, she. She did her own thing for a while. She even got into the festival doing her own thing. Because um, I think up in D.C., you know, there's five disclaimers. There's five factions that are all doing underground stuff. Here, there was only one. And then when a second one came in, it was like, oh, God. Right. Now there's a dozen. Well, they're, yeah, but they're all small. Yeah. And we all get along. They're right? all like, like, right, right. It doesn't all, you could, yeah, I mean, here you're in with one and you can kind of be in with all of them because your name gets around. There, you have to take time to individually get in with each each subsect, right. which is the same thing that he's talking about with getting in with individual clubs in New York. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, I'm super in in Greenville. Like, I go down there, I get nothing but kindness and respect. Up in Asheville, I, I have to work for every ounce of just like humanity. Well, that's but that's good for you just because you live here. Right. And so you kind of have to fight for your stake in where you live and then once you get that you'll I I'm you're going to feel like you know I, I've I've done Greenville and I've done Asheville. Now I'm going to go over to Knoxville and yeah. do some stuff. And Knoxville's then, fun too. Yeah, Knoxville's great fun. Oh no, I did I had fun in Knoxville. I mean, right. I'm saying everywhere outside of Asheville is yeah. e- is easy for me. Yeah, well, that's but that's what... always going to happen cuz you're here. Like I always thought DC was a bit of a tough nut to crack for me and I was a fixture in that scene. And it was just one of those things where you feel like they don't respect you until you leave. And I I still feel that way. I just can't wait for the day when 
I can record an album and I they ask me where and I say we're going to Asheville to record my album because uh-huh. that's I Josie did it with the lab and it turned out great and I'm not saying I'm anywhere near close to it but I just it's gonna happen like this is my home this is where I want my humor to be heard so I'd say that's a good goal yeah, um, and I, yeah, another goal was with the festival, like, I did the festival for a couple of years, and I really like it, but I don't want to do it again until I'm asked back by them. I don't want to apply. You don't want to apply. I yeah. want to get asked back, because I see them do that. They bring in headliners. Won't that be great for them when the next, when one year a headliner can be someone that started in Asheville? Yeah. That will look good for them, and it that that'll happen. Yeah, I applied this year, but they only let in a couple people. From yeah, Nashville. you got to apply for a couple years before you get in. Art Sturdivant, the hero that he is, uh, applies every year, and I don't know. They just don't see him. You know what the problem is for Art is uh, nobody gets to see him shine here. Like, I have been watching him for. He would kill at the festival. I'm sure he would. I have seen him kill. Yeah. But only recently, and. It's because when I when I was hosting the Southern, I put him up in the middle of the show. Mm-hmm. No one does that for him. Right. But I was like, I want to see if this guy's any good. Like, I can't fucking tell mm-hmm. because I only ever see him go up, you know, to an empty room. Well, right. he, he does do. He does very well. Oh, yeah. No, he did great. And then I just was on a show with him in Tryon, which was a really warm audience. But he absolutely crushed it. Just yeah. crushed it. And he, he was yeah. so professional on stage. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's from the Bob Newhart camp. And I feel, feel like if you're from a Bob Newhart camp, you can't go wrong. Because Bob Newhart's one of the funniest people to ever and exist. And he's so nice. Yeah. Mm. I love art. Art's a great guy. I, I think we're on the same page. I just, I'm, I was just, it was interesting to watch. I, I was speaking to your point if you think they yeah. don't see him. Yeah. And that's because. It's not an easy room for um, older, uh, older white men in that room. You know, you see, I've seen it. I see it every time that we go there. Yeah. Middle-aged white men don't get good spots. It's not really their crowd. They're kind of the enemy in that spot because so many of these other people are supposed to be young and, and diverse and enigmatic. And he looks like he can look a little stiff. And, and what, his jokes are, are clean. Yeah. And also here, when you're in such a creative space, when you see somebody that's an older white male... You figure you you know all with everything that they're about right off the top. Because if you're here and you're an older white male, you're probably well to do, and you don't care about uh, issues that are prevalent to young people. And a lot of times, if you want to break out of that, you have to be a wacky older. <laughs> like you'll have to wear the goofy um, uh, the goofy shirt or. Dressed like a bird. <laughs> I forgot about him. Oh yeah, the dressed. last time we were here, there was a guy dressed like a bird. I remember. I remember. It was him. a drag bird. Yeah, and then it's like he started doing stand up, and he was funny. Yeah, we were like, and why like, are you oh, still God. dressing up like a bird? Yeah, you like be... you're you're using this as a gimmick because you don't trust you're funny enough. Mm-hmm. Just that's your game show announcer. What? Dressing yeah. up like a bird. Yeah, you might as well be dressing up as a bird or or <laughs> donkey name. <laughs> but like it's that's. I, but I think that might be part of it, and um, it's kind of nice now to watch to go through it and watch these things with him and and see it over and over again. Right. Pretty much every scene is the same. 
with you know, these the scales pro- with a little these bit problems. different. But yeah, but that's but that's something every comic needs to get out of the scene for too, just to get over that fear. Like, but oh I, yeah, it's, it's like this everywhere. It's still nice to come home and get like a warm reception. I think a lot of New York comics do that. They go to New York, they get good, but without really realizing it, because there's no way to tell. Right. And then they go have a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah in their hometown and just get the warm welcome and then go back to the grind. Yeah. You need both. Yeah, it's true. Got to win every now and then. You really do need both. I'm able to go back to New York now with a renewed sense of vigor. I'm going to start asking for spots because you really do have to ask. I'm going to start like going, like getting off my tuchus. <laughs> and going to shows that I'm not on to put my face in to start the long road. It's just sort of insurmountable if you look at it all at once. Yeah, because it is a long road. But it's I'm so like, long. if I'm going to do it, I'm going to try to have as much fun with it as I can and just be out there. I don't want to have uh, any time where I sit down like, oh, I should have done more. For that, it. That's another mantra that you reminded me of. Uh, it's not yours. It's Ron White. But Ron White said... Um, you know, I was doing comedy 20 years, couldn't fill a calendar. I was doing comedy 21 years, couldn't get a, a date at my home club in my hometown. I was doing comedy 22 years, and I was on the road with the Rednecks of Comedy Tour. So it's like, it's a numbers game. It's like not giving up. Like, yeah. yeah, and it's gradually all of a sudden... Yeah. Right, just like, one year. Is anybody all I've ever talked to, I remember I, when I met Louis Black and he, uh, and he heard I was a comic, he's just like, well, just get good, the money will follow. Yeah, and everything else will follow. And every comic that I've ever talked to told me that. And I never really cared about money. I just wanted to tell. I wanted to be known for writing good jokes. And well, if I think I that's that, what he means. Money, right? Work, fa- like fame, right. like the the success. Well, like the recognition, the opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And our world, and I'm talking about our world as comics. Like our world rules don't work with the same rules as civilians do. So, for me to try to measure it in terms of civilian living just doesn't make any sense. So it's going to take a little bit more convincing from certain people. You're going to have to sort of explain yourself a little bit more, but you'll, through the explanations, they'll know you know what you're talking about and you do have some type of vision and a plan set up for yourself. The real question is going to be when it happens for one of us, First, because it's probably not going to happen for both of us at the same time. Right. Who is it? <laughs> and what do we do with it for the other one? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of a weird question, but like. I get HBO. She's out on her ass hey. immediately. <laughs> there was, always, you remember that Seinfeld where Elaine was dating a doctor and she stopped having sex with him and then not having sex made him smarter and then he passed the bar and then he broke up with her? Because she said, he said, I always said whoever I was with when I passed the, you know, the bar or whatever it's called when you get your doctor's license, I Mm. I always said I would break up with that person because then I guess he knows he can have anyone he wants and that was the doctor, you know. (laughs) So. That's funny. I always told him that when I got, when I got the headlining spots, I'd let him open for me. (laughs) Which is actually a shot in the foot because it's hard to follow him, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's how I do it. It's like, oh, you want that spot? You better earn it. I'm okay to ride the wave. I can ride your wave. Fair Because what I do is different enough from what you do that it would be a change of pace anyway. I think you guys could... That's why I was asking earlier. I get that you said you want to keep it separate, and I respect Mm. that. But also, after watching you both perform tonight and just sitting on a couch across from you for a while, you know, Mm. you're different enough, but 
complimentary enough that right. I think we you spent could, a lot of time together. <laughs> you could do really well together yeah. as yeah. an as an as an act, as a double headlining yeah. actor, as a headline feature actor, whatever you want it to be. Like, um, you know, Moshe Kasher and uh, Natasha Lagero, they're doing the honeymoon R- tour. Rich Voss, R- Rich and, Voss Bonnie and Bonnie McFarlane. McFarlane, Eddie Gosling, Megan Mooney, uh, Tracy Skeen, Brian McKinn. Yeah, there's tons of examples uh, that we have. Um, uh, Pajitsky, Christina Pajitsky, and Segura, and Tom oh Segura. Oh my god, yeah. Mm. Really funny. They actually started at the same time. And these, they met at the same. They met. And their thing is also one thing I notice about these people is, is that they they can have the act together, and you wouldn't know that they are together just from the act, which is something that I like. Yeah, yeah. I think that we could accomplish that. Yeah. You stop telling boyfriend jokes. No, I'm just kidding. That my boyfriend is black is one of the funniest things about me. <laughs> and I don't want that to be true. <laughs> it's a strong bit that I'm Which really Which part tired. don't you want to be true? You don't want the fact that that's funny to be true? Or I you don't, don't want your boyfriend to be I don't be really think it's Actually, the funniest thing about me. But I, I, it's actually getting harder to talk about that. But Why? Um, just because race relations are really um, ter- terrifying right now, and where a joke about a black man dating a bigger white woman used to be lighthearted, it's now all of a sudden getting to be a little bit more sensitive. Huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm like. I've noticed the joke working less and less. I've I'm been like, telling it's that, funny, so if I'm like, yeah, my, if it's hit right. I have this joke where I say, I have a black, my boyfriend's black, and it's true what they say black men do have bigger white women. <laughs> and it's, it's a, a great, great joke. It's a fucking great joke. It's a great joke. And I've been telling it, and I've been opening with it for a long time, and I've noticed it working less and less. That's and you're believing I, in it less. That's well, a great joke. I don't believe in it less. It's the, it's an opener. I believe in it as I've always done. I just, I think it could be the delivery. It could Something. be that I'm better than it. But I also think it's because it's harder to get away with these days. That, that may be true. Um, I'm just, you know, it's positing a, yeah. the possibility that you might be backing off from I'm it. I'm just a little tired of your of concerns. It. Yeah. Yeah. But that is a very, very funny joke. I agree. It's it, it, it's one of those jokes that's like, man, hasn't that been told before? But I really don't think it has. I haven't heard it. Not I've like never that. heard it. Not many versions of it, yeah. but not succinct in that way. Not succinct and not like, and, and not a play on the other stereotype. Right. You know, like. I was very pleased with myself no, I think it's joke. a great we're never gonna though. break up because I, I hate <laughs> I, I hate ever... being in the room when she tells it um and he doesn't like, like the way I lead into it and either. I don't like like uh like Minora is gonna put us together on last night's show and I'm just like no put somebody else in between us because I like to sort of have a clean slate people used to put Allie and I up next to each other and I always said that's a bad idea too. I didn't know, I mean anyone who doesn't know you I didn't know you were a couple yeah, yeah but it's something I'm thinking about because I know she'll talk about it Oh, and I see. Not right. necessarily, people, but sometimes. But yeah, there's a couple times I had to go up after her telling a bunch of bro- boyfriend jokes, and they know it's me, so I have to go up and be like, oh, yeah, my girlfriend is a uh, single. And then start <laughs> from there. See, but we have ways out of all of that stuff. Yeah, we've done it before, and it's like we'll... Well, uh, like we had something when Get Out came out. We where both we, wrote jokes about the get, watching Get Out together, and we watched it together. Unbeknownst to the other one, we went to a mic together and we had both written jokes about it. Right. So I was talking about just the, like I said, Get Out's a great movie. I highly recommend it if you get the chance. See it as a black man with a white woman. Oh my God, it's so much better. <laughs> and it was talking about that, and then when she went up, she had a joke, and she only told this once, and I wish she told this again because it was so brilliant. <laughs> 
she gets up and she's like, okay, aside from all the kidnapping and torture, but aside from all the nefarious stuff that white people do to black people in that movie, like, like what's so bad about it? And I'm like, I'm like, that is so funny. And then I realized, I was like, you know what? I'm a white woman and I'm dating a black man. I have a sister. She's a white woman. She's dating a black man. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it's making my parents' house in the woods look real suspicious. <laughs> so There's two of us. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, a, it's good. I actually only stopped telling that because it's not really relevant anymore. The movie's kind of yeah. out for a while. So it was topical anyway. Yeah. Well, maybe you can find a way to update it, but Every, I mean, I, I yeah. think the rest of the joke works. Yeah, mm. it's also really scary. <laughs> you know, because like I'm, co- I mean, I'm, I don't really think that, but it's pretty funny. Right? Yeah, like you kind of have to uh, 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 assume the moniker of a horrible person just to get that so to work, but because of that, that is so funny. <laughs> it was really funny, and it was also really funny that we both had it. We both wrote jokes. And it was a completely it. opposite perspective yeah. on it. And I think I even want to. I, I even started saying like, if you have the chance to see it, I don't recommend it as a white woman <laughs> dating a black man. So, <laughs> so that's we, funny too, like right? Inverses yeah. of each other. Yeah. yeah, but that's where like our our perspectives and our respective experience help. We help uh, translate that through the jokes. And we laugh a lot. Like people ask what it's like dating a comic, and I always say we either laugh a lot or not at all. Which is pretty much the yeah. goddamn is true. It's either really, really funny. We we have like a code language, like we just we just say things that don't really make sense to other people. Like that prison joke where the guys stand up and yell out a number. Have you heard that? No. You never heard this joke? I'm not sure I have. So this is guy. He's new to the pen and and uh, he's in the mess hall and it's quiet. You mm-hmm. know, just quiet. All you hear is the sound of people eating and. Some guy stands up, he's like, 42, and everybody laughs hysterically, you know, and, <laughs> and somebody else stands up, he's like, 27, and everybody, like, banging their plates, you know, they're loving it, and so the new guy stands up, and, or no, he says, uh, um, he, he asks the guy, he's like, what's going on? He's, you know, why is this so funny? And this old-timer says, well, we've all been in here so long, we've all heard each other's jokes, so we just gave the jokes numbers, and now people stand up, and... They just say the number, you know, and then everybody remembers the joke and they laugh. That's so funny. And so the new guy gets up and he's like, uh, 1,872, and it's just fucking crickets. And he sits down and he's like, I don't know what happened. And the old guy says, well, not everybody can tell a joke. <laughs> That's a great joke. That's funny. That, was like, that reminds me of a, a, a state sketch, because uh, they used to do a, a short sketch before they started the credits, and there was one where all these people were lining up to meet the, this ambassador and it was two friends that were they were going to get in line to meet this ambassador and this ambassador came through on this red carpet with a cape and everybody that he uh greeted he would sort of grab their genitals and just lightly lift them and so they, and, and then he's like very nice to meet you and and he went through a bunch of people with that or no everybody had to do that to the ambassador so mm-hmm. like Instead of shaking his hand, he just g- grabbed a handful of his genitals and lightly lifted and was like, so nice to see you in our presence, sir. <laughs> and it went along like that. And then it came to the friend who was just really nervous about it. And he's like, okay. Um, and he reaches his hand out and grabs it. And he's like, uh, uh, nice to meet you. And everybody just goes, oh, and they're all offended. And then he walks past and then his friend goes, wrong hand. <laughs> 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 that's, that's funny. I love 
same joke. It's, yeah. it's perfect. That's funny. I've, I'm, I love that joke. I've never, I, I've never heard that one. I don't remember that one again. Uh, I think the trick is a really like awkward number. Oh uh, yeah. You know, you can't be ninety-three. Yeah. Because that, you know. Um, anyway, well, look, you guys. Uh, I know you got to hit the road, and I'm really happy that we actually fully met last night, yeah. and that you guys could make some time to. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Pleasure. Anytime. And that's going to wrap it up for my conversation with Herbie and Becca. I'm really glad I had a chance to get to know these two. They're awesome and inspiring. If you like what you heard, please visit our website, use our Amazon portal, and rate us on iTunes. Make sure you tell your friends about learning to fail, and if you feel so inclined, please consider making a donation on our donation page. That way, we can keep making new friends to fail with. Or should I say, new friends with whom to fail? I don't know. You probably shouldn't end a podcast with a preposition. You can follow me on uh, Facebook, Becca Steinhoff, Instagram, Becca E. Steinhoff, and uh, my website, BeccaSteinhoff.com, where I do put pieces of my book out to be read. Oh, cool. So, And I'm just at HerbieGill.com, my website, and that'll have links to my Facebook, my Instagram, and my Twitter, which is all Herbie Gill. Um, I do different things on all three of them, but one of my favorite things I'm doing now is on Herbie Gill, at Herbie Gill at Twitter. Every year for the Oscars, I'm a huge movie fan, and I drink a bottle of bourbon and live-tweet Oscars. And every year, the day after that, I retweet the recovery process. Learning to Fail is a production of Jason Shoulder and Marquee Comedy. Original music was created by Adam Fields, who also produces and edits each episode. Lindsay Fields handles all publicity and marketing. If you'd like to communicate with Jason, Adam, or Lindsay, please email us at learningtofailpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our blog and past episodes on ltfpod.com. To become a guest on our show or to request an interview with Jason, please send us an email or you can message us on Facebook. You can also find Learning to Fail on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as SoundCloud, Clamorate, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thank you for your continued support.